Hello and welcome to another session of the Corona Investigative Committee, session number 120. A round figure, we called it morphosis, which is a term, a Greek term, which means shaping morphosis. And it is about the variation of different shapes of organisms by effects of the environment. It is very multi-layered and there are things that affect us from the outside, leading to changes in the inside, just as the elements that are subject to these effects. I think it's a good point that we have photomorphosis with the change between dark and light. If we move to the light, we have more possibilities to develop and bigger chances rather than to grow in the dark. We have a shape as well, which um, has taken shape in uh, the family Rabenstein. Their child has been born. Congratulations. We are happy that everybody is healthy. And from my perspective, it's fascinating. It is a Virgo. Uh, I know another person from uh, that family is Virgo as well, as well as my father and my two children and Alma. I don't know if that has something to say, but there seems to be a coincidence, perhaps. Today, however, we have a guest in our studio, um, a pastor, Martin Michaelis from Quedlinburg. Happy to have you here, and maybe you would like to introduce yourself briefly of what you have done in your life? Oh, sure, I couldn't do that. I, I, I live in Quedlinburg, but I don't work as a reverend in Quedlinburg. I am a pastor, but without a particular assignment, which of course is due to the circumstances that we uh, me talk about later. As to myself, I was born in Jena, and uh, I started to work as uh, a lab assistant, um, and then I became uh, wanted to become a, a pastor. But during socialism, somebody was against the fact that I could become uh, a theology student, and but it was the only type of. Uh, university study that was possible for me uh, without having finished my high school with a high school diploma. And therefore, I didn't have to actually do my high school diploma. I saved two years because of that. And then I managed uh, to study theology. So I became a pastor, first of all, in Quedlinburg in Thuringia and after that in Steinach. And then pretty soon, back in 1997, uh, I was on the board of the Thuringian uh, group. And then in 2003, I became the chairperson of the Thuringian Parish Association, meaning that as a chairperson or chairman, you were also the representative of the um, pastors, in a word, it's something like uh, a trade union, like a works council. So I was the 
representative and I uh, worked for Lutheran Church and then I was uh, the representative of the pastors in the Lutheran Church in Germany and I uh, worked for the EKD, the uh, Ecumenical Evangelical Council and then I dared back in April of 2020 to publish a paper where I asked questions, theological questions, but also how to evaluate many of the things that were happening back then. The question was, how do we want to live and die? Because everything that we're doing is basically a very religious question, profoundly so. and. Uh, we are working with a subject matter which is about life and death. And I think that we as pastors have to find answers and try to find uh, answers to these questions. And I was surprised uh, what feedback I received, or rather no feedback at all, was given to me. And there were a few other texts that I wrote, uh, Christians Get Up, that is a publication where I contributed. And in December of last year, I was asked to participate um, in a chain of lights uh, back at the Christ Chapel in Bavaria. And I said, yes, why not? I didn't see any reason why I shouldn't be participating in that. Um, but uh, then I realized that people were very much against my way of thinking. And then I lost my positions, being the chairman of the association of parishioners, and uh, also, you know, the person representing representing the pastors in the Lutheran Church. And then I have to see how this continues on. Uh, I was suspended in my service. What was so special about that uh, light chain thing that you did? Did you say something special or was it just the accumulation of events? Basically, it was very simple. Uh, I think it was fairly banal, actually. I talked about the main uh, ideas of faith and then I said that God gave us a conscience. The conscience is to, to use it ourselves and not to follow instructions, not to be a rule follower. And then I said, what are the criteria where we have to be harping on our consciousness? And then, of course, I um, refer to the fifth commandment uh, that thou shalt not kill, and uh, connected that with the um, thoughts of Luther, and uh, you uh, also um, commit something bad if you simply take it on silently without voicing your opinion. And then somebody said, well, go to a gas station and you see what's going to happen there. And well, if you ask Luther, 
It's not only that somebody is actually threatening to break into your building and buy something, but there's also such a thing as an organized crime. Um, and the people who have all of the uh, recognition in the country may bring about changes and laws that basically legalize such things. And then the Eighth Commandment, meaning thou shalt not lie, which is also something that we all understand. And the question is, how do we interpret that? And I refer to the media. And you'd already lie if uh, I uh, am accepting what they're being saying there. And then at MDR, that's a radio um, program in East Germany, a uh, uh, station, and they themselves uh, refer to it, but they said that they, I had actually been taking the floor on a demonstration, on a rally that had not been authorized, and that was taken as a reason. And then, of course, the main point, I told the people in Article 16, of the Augsburg Confession of 1530, it says that we should that we should follow the instruction of the authorities if it is not a sin. And if there is a sin involved, then you should uh, pay attention to what God says and not what people say. And having said that was the reason why I was suspended of my duties. That uh, kind of corresponds to Article 20 of the Basic Law. Well, many of the things that we have in our constitution and also in our jurisdiction is based on Christian writings and uh, certain aspects of the Reformation. It's interesting because Martin Luther, he was at the Elsator and there he, uh, and you, you, you can see that in paintings from the 19th century, and uh, there he said that it's wrong to ban things. and. And then he put on a fire and he lit it up. But what actually caused an earthquake was the first canonical law. And it said that in Europe, in Germany for sure, we needed new laws. And um, especially now, I mean, now this is something that is extremely striking. We should take a look at that. Well, people are burning their electricity bills, their vaccine passports, showing that the regulations and the measures uh, that they are um, obliged with are, have nothing to do with taking care for a good society. And the role of the church, the role of the church I personally think has always been problematic throughout these times, especially at the beginning. The saying was that uh, there were no church services anymore, no masses were held, and even uh, the people who were about to die could not receive visitors. You were not allowed to visit uh, family members, and that, of course, is a, 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 a very severe um, curtailing of, of your rights. and. Uh, uh, if you 
our uh, personal faith and you're in the last hours of your life uh, is horrible that the reverend or the priest cannot go and, and, and see you. And also my family members cannot come to see me. And then sometimes at the very last moment, they gave them special permits to visit family members. But of course, it's something that you don't want. And in my petition back then, uh, I received a great echo. Many people said, this is a, a force, a strength that I get out of uh, uh, this church service that I don't have now. How do you see that? And there was very little protest back then. Yes, I was surprised by that as well. Um, I got a note from the office that they um, feared such restriction. That was the reason for me to write my first uh, paper. Um, I kind of, uh, it caused problems for me, saying that we have to ask questions in that respect. And if it had been a pandemic, whether it was or not, I leave the medical people to decide that. But I think we can know by now, there is enough of information around. Uh, then the task of the church would have been, especially at that point, to support people and if people die it would have been its task to uh, get people to heaven in a safe way if i can put it that uh, bluntly and that was not that did not take place that did not take place and i was very surprised how the church dropped off and uh, jürgen fliege put it uh, to the point in an article in rubicon i had this in a paper in April 21 that the we have the um, we've we've taken uh, we've taken the comfort of the cross of the altar and put dead the death on and uh, that was a serious change um, we um, had. I think that was a fatal error, which in the end, if we consequently interpret the writings, um, it shakes the church to its foundation stones. I think in Kurdistana, we can read in Article 7 what church is to be supposed to be. The confederation of the believers where we hear the um, word of the Lord and the sacraments and that if the meeting doesn't do this it's not church anymore and this is something that should have been made clear and thought right through from the beginning at least to the Protestant Lutheran understanding a uh, pastor doing their service alone is not a service in the strict sense. Uh, of course, they tried to do whatever was possible uh, to use the internet for services, but that is not the comfort that we need. And um, you can't simply offer uh, 
the the supper, the Last Supper, at with, with the internet, uh, there should have been protest. Um, consequently, neglecting the power of death. That is what the church should have said and done. Quite clearly, Luther makes it clear at one point in the explanations on the supper in the catechism um, for the people with responsibility. Um, it, he says it's not possible for someone to pretend to eat death in the Last Supper. I think that is highly unchristian to say something this. It uh, provides comfort, it uh, comforts soul and body. And in his description, he says, for a healthy soul and a healthy body always belong together. Um, one is not thinkable without the others. And in that sense, the church would have had a special responsibility to take. At some point, they tried to a bit, but not with the clarity which would have been necessary. I know of one colleague who was not allowed to enter a care home, and at least he was able to get a court ruling to allow him to enter into that care home, but he was not just praised alone for that. The body as a temple of God, as they say, and that in your body that you actually get together in an assembly, in a church service, and being with others, uh, find solace and comfort. This is exactly what was missing. People were alone, they were desperate, no contacts. It was uh, a horrible brutality. And what you said earlier, I thought that was interesting. So you said there was almost like a, like a death cult because uh, instead of uh, providing solace, death was ever present. Well, that is a bit different, of course. Yeah, well, I exaggerated a bit. It is not a death cult, even. That would be if we especially honor the dead. But here, we celebrate death itself in the sense that we sacrifice our most holy uh, things, uh, the God, the word of the Lord, and the sacraments to him. and. We know from services that did not take place. But because of that, um, I personally could give you name and date um, where it hit me as well, because there was fear that the corona rules wouldn't be maintained, observed. And I think church should be beyond this. I often looked at pictures such as uh, <coughs> Jesus talking to the leopards, and he wasn't afraid of being in touch with them. And as a young doctor, I worked with uh, people at TBC, and it is such a strength that 
when you help others, which will also protect you against infection. And there is some truth in that because the fear that you might have of uh, germs, uh, well, then you take on rules that are very abstract. But uh, contact with people who need help, that's something completely different. If uh, uh, somebody has an open tuberculosis and he's coughing, of course I put on a mask, but not if I just enter the room, because they also received medication and then you know that it's not contagious anymore. But if somebody else who doesn't understand that and say, oh, this guy has an open tuberculosis and it's open, that people wouldn't even walk into the room. And then as a patient, you feel terrible when nobody comes into your room anymore. That's simply not on. That's a no-go. That's important for the patient uh, who is affected by that, who is endangered, who has uh, infection. It was also important uh, for the one who wants to help that you're not afraid. You should be sensible. You should protect yourself, but don't give the other the sign, I'm so afraid of touching you. Um, because that will then weaken everybody concerned. And with many doctors, it is like that, that we are, they are strong. They, in their professional routine, they know exactly nothing can happen. And, you know, very few uh, incidences do occur. Of course, you have to wash your hands and stick to hygiene rules, but that's obvious. But then again, uh, there are many rules that are so abstract that only they only express fear, the fear that something might occur, and that fear uh, shouldn't be there, uh, because uh, the ones who need help have to receive it. Recently, we had the healing of the uh, death, and uh, I think uh, he solved that with his own spit. Just imagine what would have happened nowadays. And I think it was very interesting to see that under this aspect, because we have many children um, that were silenced with the masks. Of course, not 100%, but we stopped the development of language. Um, and that has been proven by now. And um, we didn't do any good for the children with that. And it all works with love and love needs facial expression. Our son told me lately that at the moment when he was forced to go somewhere with a mask, he uh, all the mimics of his child died away immediately when he put that mask on. And that was a reason enough for him not to wear the mask because he saw how it affects the soul of the child in its development. Yeah, I know of one concrete case where, in fact, a child stopped talking, uh, only talked to uh, the mother or, or another member of him, but doesn't talk to anybody else because so overwhelmed by the situation that uh, it doesn't want to speak anymore. And that's crazy what they're doing to us there. And Mr. Borok, if you mentioned love, love is always physical somehow with physical closeness. Otherwise, it 
it's impossible. I don't think that can't be replaced by anything. It is absolutely needed and we feel that every day. And I think we have to be clear that politics and many people have gone to a mechanical monocausal thinking. I can't simply take a mask of filtered air to protect myself against uh, everything. I think you know that better than I, that the immune system is so complex. If you don't challenge it, it uh, breaks down. And uh, there is this uh, saying, uh, if you're never ill, you're not healthy either. Yeah, you cannot protect yourself against uh, viruses. Uh, and the breathing apparatus. Uh, you take on and off the mass. You can't control it all the time. And these small particles will somehow find its way into our immune system, and then uh, the immune system has to react. And these um, viruses um, are there, uh, and we are exposed to them if you have a face covering or not, and if you get an injection or not. And we know that the influenza injection, I mean, uh, we've seen that, when is it, 12 years ago, 14 years ago, it was very clearly shown. Um, it was revised and, and checked up upon uh, that the um, vaccination uh, uh, against viruses of the breathing apparatus do not have any effect. Um, there are perhaps certain cases when you are with the elderly who are in a home situation, uh, they say basically, yes, washing your hands is important. And it's especially important if you stop, continuously touch your mask because the mask is an additional risk, of course, because, uh, you know, things get accumulated, especially when you eat, you take it off. When you want to drink uh, something, you take it off. And you are constantly touching the mask and therefore it's a complete nonsensical uh, to use it and that now we're supposed to be uh, using them on trains or in any interior uh, and then there are those who, who smoke and then they take it off and then they put it on or they take a sip uh, many people uh, walk through the streets of berlin with an open beer bottle or an open Coke bottle, it's still, I mean, it's you, you keep touching the mask and it doesn't make any sense, any sense at all. It is really only a signal with which you show that you're obedient. Uh, and there are some that are absolutely obedient and they even use their mask when there's nobody watching and when they're all by themselves. I feel so sorry for these people. Um, that's pitiful because they are so afraid of not being obedient. There's nothing about thinking uh, because if not, people are simply too uh, normally they're smart, they prepare their, their taxes, they do their business, they do stuff. Everybody keeps asking questions, and, and, but when it comes to such instructions made under uh, the umbrella of fear, people stop asking any questions, and I'm, I'm appalled by that. It makes me sad, too. Yeah. Um, feeling sorry, I'd be careful on one side, yes, okay, on one hand, but on the other hand, it is a way to exert power by those who you could feel sorrow, sorry for, and um, they make others suffer, that is being used as an instrument of power, really. 
also by these people. I lost the chair of the Turinga Pastors Association because um, I didn't stick to the rules and they couldn't bear with me. Uh, so actually, these people who you could feel for, sorry for actually cause harm to others. And then that has limits to my sorrow. Bonhoeffer, he wrote an essay on stupidity, and in fact, I tried to uh, distribute it even more and disseminate it on my homepage because he's speaking about uh, what um, is so difficult to deal with. Uh, and basically, it means that you don't want to think. You refuse to ponder things and you don't want to contemplate that what others are thinking because um, if the other guy starts thinking then you're all bare and therefore um, you don't want to appear silly so it's a very complex um, societal um, machinery and uh, you have these examples of how beautiful life can be when you do not simply follow the rules. Uh, we don't need obedience in democracy. We need people to be active, to be engaged, to be committed, we to be to uh, be engaging in your arguments, and then finally you agree on something. But simply obedience, that's what you have in totalitarian states. But we are not a totalitarian state. And that's why people go out on the street and protest. And I think that's great. I'd like to comment one thing. I don't know if all the people who wear the masks you still see people in supermarkets wearing masks or in schools. I know that uh, people do it. I think it's not only the feeling, as, as I see them, that they want to be obedient, but it's a way of maybe a f feeling of being protected or being especially careful that this found this kind of expression, that it is fear-driven. And, of course, uh, as a, as a doctor, I can say whoever says that and tells that to the people should be locked up according to the new rules because um, if you, you know, give out that kind of wrong information on health, and that's exactly what uh, the government is doing, um, that is something um, that sh is um, a felony. It's, it's uh, liable to be punished because the majority of scientists, whoever deals with that, with the functionality of masks, people have been doing that over decades who know the literature, they say, stop that nonsense. And in other countries, they have stopped doing that. It's only here where there are people who say, you must continue wearing your mask. And that is something that um, I don't understand. Well, that is obedience, isn't it? Well, the fear that these people have and is instilled in them, that is the fear of the state uh, and also um, a lack of being strong, which you have to be when you are in a democratic society and want to participate. May I ask, or if you didn't want to, maybe you want to add something? Well, as to being obedient, um, I, I don't think that we should go do away with all of the obedience, but uh, we have to be careful who do we uh, obey. And then, of course, being blindly obedient, that is something that must be rejected, especially when other people uh, uh, provide the rules. Uh, but according to the Augsburg Convention, if you cannot do something without sin, you must not 
obey the authorities. And that decision, is it with sin or without sin? That is a decision that we ourselves have to make. And that's that being able to make that choice is something that they have taken away from us because the state doesn't want us to ask these questions. The authorities say that and in, 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 in any public press conference, the state says, no, don't think. We provide the thinking for you, and that is wrong. And therefore, we need to be obedient, that's what they say. And I would re understand in such a way that we need to obey God. And obeying God means uh, act in the way that would be in accordance with his creation. We have been given an immune system, and if I trust God, that immune system should suffice. Because if it didn't suffice, then God would have given us a mask. But he didn't. That is a bit constructed, what you say there. However, I, I do think if uh, we take an everyday example on our life, everybody loves football. Many people watch football, they've got their team, they watch the, the cops and the league, and that's a game that's great fun, and it's nice, but only if the people follow the rules. And of course. I checked in the history of the football rules, how they changed over the years. There's been lots of changes, so uh, some of the rules weren't there from the beginning and they were changed. It is always adjusted so to make the game smoother. And this is how our uh, living together is. It's a kind of game that we play every day, where we try to win, to be a bit better, faster, to score the goals. and. That is uh, where we decided that this has to follow certain rules. And as the referees, we it's not only our, our impression. So we have the situation, um, both sides think they were right, and not one uh, said, uh, uh, that's what we have the referee for, to uh, really decide somebody who's independent from all parties who knows, knows the rules and say can can judge whether something is foul play or not and this function of the law of the courts is what i don't see anymore they did work better in the past they uh, looked more closely and uh, uh, checked what was going on and now you can't rely on them anymore yeah, the question to be raised is, is if there is a religious component in this, and I think there is. There is one. Because for such decisions, uh, at the end of the day, you need a, a, a moral ground. For any kind of rule, you need a moral ground. And so far, it's been like that, that uh, the ch churches were accountable for the fact that the ground rules on which also our judicial system is based, that these will be continued. But that is the task of the church, not that you keep committing sins, because that you find that in the writings of Luther. All the people who work in the church are normal people, simple people, and they don't have any uh, greater powers or greater understandings. They uh, have proper training, and they're supposed to teach the word of God. And to make sure where the instance is that basically gives you the final ruling. You have that in the Ten Commandments. And 
our legal system is based on the Ten Commandments. And what I have seen in the past is that they tried to destroy that house because with an atheism, but also the media are uh, daring to become themselves a moral um, authority. And they tell us what we need to think and uh, how uh, we need to judge certain things in a moral sense. And that happens on an everyday basis. And not too long ago, I thought, well, you, you have to think this through and, and think it very clearly and see what is actually happening. Because if I push the Lord off his throne, then it should be naive to believe that this throne will remain vacant. Others will assume that throne and they will act as if they were God and then they will call the shots. And that is exactly what we're experiencing at the moment. And you have to consider, wouldn't it be to be seen as a story that we unfortunately don't quite understand that the throne may be occupied in the sense that we cannot ever decide who is on it. Uh, okay, we may remain free, but the thing is this, our soul is independent. Nobody can tell us what our soul is doing. And that's why Luther had the strength to go against the authorities, against the emperor, against the pope, because he knew the, where his moral compass was. And this freedom that we have been enjoying in Germany over centuries now uh, is uh, something that we need to to be grateful to the uh, Reformation for. That's liberty. So what happened then? These um, findings should be known to other theologists and priests and pastors. Was that redefined, saying it's not a sin to restrict the people, but the sin is to endanger others? Or what was the interpretation that went wrong there? Yeah, that brings us back to the point where we were earlier, that uh, we we simply bartered our freedom away uh, because of the fear of death. So life and, and, and death, these were the, the, the two main points and everything else had to succumb to it. And whatever may jeopardize somebody else was supposed to be suppressed and was not on and was not allowed, uh, but that limited our life in such a way that we couldn't do anything anymore. So it's a closed loop, so to say, but you didn't see any discussion going on in the beginning or meanwhile saying that we may be exaggerating a bit or something. It's very surprising that there's hardly any opposite voice. Well, what I observe is that people are dealing with the corona rules in detail, but 
they they never saw it from a theological point of view and questioned it theologically. You can deal with the rules. You can uh, uh, maybe you uh, uh, as a physician would say, well, you have to look at it from a medical point of view. But we should have said. Well, is it spiritually, theologically correct, or isn't there a fallacy? And this is the kind of discussion that I wanted to get started, but I wasn't successful, but not as successful as I wanted to be. Is that theologically spiritual? Is that comparable to moral ethics? It's more than that. Uh, morally, ethically, that is a consequence of uh, what you garner from a theological, spiritual, um, instructions that you find for yourself. But first of all, there are some basic theological questions that need to be answered. I mean, look at the writings. Luther writes in the Catechism uh, on the first uh, article, who is the creator? He says, God gave me my life and my body. And that is an important decision. It seems to be banal, but he gave it to me. So in other words, nobody else has any access to my body and my mind. And uh, I live in a concurrence with my belief, and only I can decide of what I do with my body. Nobody else can interfere. And you can think about anything, uh, you know, vaccination, uh, contact restrictions. Uh, you can offer that to me, but I'm the one who has to make the decision. And only if you look at that first article of the Catechism, uh, you would say, this is it. You do not follow those rules. What we see here is uh, trespassing lines. Absolutely. Because uh, this goes all the way into the economic sphere, and Luther, again, is pretty strong on this. Uh, we never understood that. His, his understanding, his uh, knowledge went very far, and he interpreted a verse from the Old Testament, the fifth book of uh, Moses. It says, do not to take uh, the millstone. Uh, there is an upper and the lower millstone. This is an apparatus that you have at home. And there, with that, you prepare your own grain in the morning so that you can make your bread. And if you take that away, you cannot make your bread anymore. You can't grind it. So what does that mean? And Luther says that is malice, that uh, people are not allowed to exercise their profession with which they can uh, basically finance their lives. Uh, because if you look at that, at the um, vaccination, the forced vaccinations, people are not allowed to work if they do not get vaccinated and to the point that they don't get paid for anymore. So that is uh, exhaustion because uh, according to Luther and uh, according to all the writings, it's something that simply is not allowed. And as Christians, when we deal with that in a theological sense, we must say, such uh, an instruction simply must be ignored. 
uh, and uh, diachronical institution, of course, has to stick to that interpretation too. Of course, people don't like my interpretation, but I think uh, when you cannot justify something in a theological, spiritual way, then you have to ask yourself, can that be right? Well, the thing with taking the millstones away is something that we see. We see that in the reaction of the farmers. Uh, who are stripped of their millstones, who can't uh, produce on their own fields anymore, who depend on uh, fertilizer producers from patents, who are put under pressure by big corporations, and the land is taken away from them. They are put into great credit and ruled sometimes by simple hygiene uh, rules that they can't uh, uh, slaughter around uh, pigs, they can't keep the chicken anymore. This is done with hygiene rules that only big companies can adhere to if they have the veterinarian. And uh, the small um, companies can't uh, slaughter their pigs or their, their chicken and can't feed, so they are simply a little wheel in that big uh, machine which is driven by stock markets, and that's what makes the farmers furious, and that has directly linked, that's directly linked with what you've just said about the millstones. It's completely dependent of all that corona fear, but in parallel, that is just what's being done now. Yeah, in the uh, small catechism, uh, that it, where it says that God is the creator, we can read that God uh, gave me uh, my field, my house, my farm, and, and we are only accountable to God, not to any government uh, uh, or some major groups. And in the catechism, uh, the seventh commandment, thou shalt not steal. Um, and, you know, using so -called the, the so-called law, people were taken, uh, were, were uh, robbed of their fields, of their homes. And that is, of course, uh, in direct contradiction uh, to the Bible. And we protested. And uh, you can easily uh, rely uh, on your creed, on your uh, confession of faith, and also on the basic law, because it uh, says that uh, uh, when you're a Christian, you can follow your. Rules. Well, the federal constitutional court has uh, explained that um, due to this important fundamental right, it has to be reanalyzed again and again whether the measures are still appropriate or not. And um, nothing resulted from that. That is uh, quite, quite something. I was very disappointed when I, as a member of parliament, uh, was looking into the area of care. And I talked to the bishop uh, up north uh, in Germany, uh, Bishop Ulrichs, and uh, I was then invited by the diaconical uh, meeting. Uh, it was in one big castle, and I was allowed to discuss these issues with them. And uh, this was a panel discussion, and the 
uh, diacony as well as the Catholic uh, side as well were in uh, direct competition with the companies that provide these services. So in other words, uh, you know, these companies that provide healthcare, they of course are money driven, which of course is in uh, direct contradiction to what the church wants that, uh, uh, you know, wants to help uh, the people. So the church, if they follow in on this, is of course uh, uh, becoming not very credible anymore. And they said, yeah, but it's not so bad. And, you know, we also have to, to think along uh, financial guidelines. And that made me very skeptical as opposed to the church, because I don't understand how you can change it. But I think it has to do with the fact uh, that you don't have the church back in the village anymore. Um, you know, if you do it inside a small community in a village, then, you know, the church takes on certain tasks also on an organizational level and helps out. But the moment you have federations on the state level or the national level, then you have a CEO and um, then, of course, they, they think along those uh, economic guidelines. But we need this area of protection of the community, of the parish uh, to uh, provide care and to have that way of thinking uh, for that you need the space and church would be so strong if they could do that to uh, be in a, a subsidiary system where they organize in small groups it would be so great if the church could be there because the abilities on a communal level would be to provide for each other, to care, to help each other. And I know places where that works, and that's so fantastic. I'm, I'm still hopeful for the future that that's going to occur again. But that wouldn't mean to take a close look whether the church really organizes itself as Luther thought it should do, uh, or whether it uh, has... Uh, Fall into the well, who's the church? Where is the church? Where is the church now? At the top or is it back in the community yes. in the, on the ground rules? That's what I want to say. The church is the meeting of the believers and not the management of whatever kind. And um, Luther has this um, teachings of the two regiments saying that God rules the world by two regiments. One is his words and the sacraments and in the sense of the sermon and the other is by the simple worldly power. And both mustn't be mixed, but they must relate to each other. And it has to be made clear that the church as an organization is to be allocated to the worldly power. What does the church need power for? What for? Exactly. That's the question. It, uh, those who are to spread the word of the Lord should not have any power at all. And we've mixed it all up, not at least by the money, that we have to rethink the whole organization in order to avoid false and wrong dependencies. 
Well, apparently power and money is interchangeable. You can buy power. The PPPs are the perfect examples for that, that you can actually purchase power. And that if you have a region where people take care of each other and you have a regional budget with which you need to deal, uh, then you have uh, a situation like you have it in Scandinavia in providing health care or where you have regional uh, budgets. And then, of course, you see what you do with the money, but there is no ulterior motive. There's nobody from somewhere else uh, telling you what to do. So there are models where this works very well. Such models uh, you also have with the involvement of the church. So the uh, Catholic uh, teaching of subsidiarity uh, was discussed in great detail at time. And I mean, that's exactly basically what we're talking about. So we have to see what is it that we can do with that today? How can we implement that? How can we put it into practice? And what power do you need at what point? And where is it that you don't need any power anymore? I think that's a serious question to the whole organization of the church, which is so complex and complicated at the moment with the money that normal people can't understand it. And that disempowers um, <clears throat> them as well. Uh, if somebody couldn't understand the world around them, they can't participate. So the church taxes shouldn't go to the church that shares them around, but it should be um, collected in the communities and the community should decide what it Precisely. wants to give the church. Yeah, like with the dog tax, that's also a communal tax, just at local level. And maybe I would like to look at the historical warning. I have this um, great uncle who I've quoted, Monsignor Heinrich Feuerstein, and he was a Catholic uh, priest in Donaueschingen. And he committed in the Nazi time against the Nazis um, that it would be a sin um, with uh, the war and that these um, tendencies to euthanasy um, of the people who are not worthy of their lives, that's what he mentioned in his sermons in 1941. He had the New Year's uh, ceremony, held the New Year's ceremony, and then he was picked up by the Discapo and then died in custody. And he is mentioned in a book by Professor Moll, a theologist who did a book of, I think, 400 pastors and preached and uh, reverence um, in a book and I asked him where the church is in this difficult situation today and uh, doesn't really um, transport the love of each other's. And there was no real response to it. Uh, it was not really addressed that this situation um, happened at the time again where the church, the church simply went along taking on that pseudo-ideology 
which is this health ideology in some way, or I don't know, a, a physical ideology, if I want to call it that. Uh, um, has that been addressed that there could have been a historic uh, um, demand in this kind of situation that the love and the togetherness um, that this uh, may be a warning signal from the past as well. Was that discussed or wasn't it? Well, basically, uh, in society and also in church, this is a taboo. You're not allowed to compare it. I know you're not allowed to compare it, but we've had Vera Sharaf here with us. I would say the historical situation is understood in a way that it is a request to look in detail and see could there be any demand. Maybe it's a request to <clears throat> look in close detail, not drawing comparisons um, with the human dignity. She talked about experiments with that experimental substance without wanting to go to detail here. One could say that there is a request not to close your eyes and uh, maybe address things, or maybe not. Well, she spoke in Nuremberg, so did I. And and this paper was mentioned, the paper that says that the church after World War II basically admitted their guilt. And because of that, they drew conclusions, which they hadn't done until then, but should have done, of course. And these are criteria and have to be criteria for, all, for us as Christians. And starting from such extreme situations, you have criteria that we should always adhere to. Because if something can be compared or not, that is a discussion that I don't even want to have. You only know it afterwards anyhow, if it is worse or just as bad or, or not so bad. I believe that there is a temptation to uh, focus on money and power. That temptation is always there. Uh, you can read it in the Gospel. Uh, the devil led Jesus to the mountain and he offered to him that stone can be turned into bread and uh, to give him power over earth and humankind if he would only recognize the devil. Uh, and that is something that is always there. Temptation is there. And uh, sometimes temptation comes in different looks. And it's our task to watch out very careful which is the temptation, to identify the temptation as such. And the understanding from the past may help us on this. I would not want to make that comparison because that will mislead us, because then we don't understand uh, what clothes this temptation is wearing. We don't know what temptation looks like. And at the moment, Horst Eberhard Richter uh, described that in his book, uh, God's Complex. 
Uh, you know, this belief of feasibility, that is uh, the clothes that the devil sometimes is wearing, the temptation is wearing, because that you think that everything can be done and that uh, belief in God can be replaced by our own doing, but our belief in being able to do it ourselves. But then we can try, but we will fail because at the end of the day, it will lead us to an over-regulation, which, if I understand it right, would be decadence. Because if you regulate and regulate and regulate to the point that nothing can go wrong, well, the entire system will break down. Yeah, you get entangled, like uh, Mr. Lauterbach clearly tells us and shows us, or demonstrates, but the devil um, has modernized and uh, he is um, using um, armies of psychologists and media experts uh, to inform us about his thing. And this is something that uh, I wonder, how can it be that it all works so nicely? How can they instrumentalize these people? Of course, you can do it with money if the devil is very rich. He can pay loads of money, and if you could get the people dependent on money, you give them their jobs, pay good salaries, they don't want to let go of them, and then they're trapped. The typical dead devil's trap. And then they go along, and uh, then it's very difficult. Of course, the devil knows this very well, and um, this is why we have such a refined devil as of today. Yeah, of course, the devil takes us in with things that, that are good and really are good and uh, look good and feel good. And then, of course, it takes the next level. Money, oh, that's uh, a great thing at the beginning to start uh, getting an economy moving. It's basically a good invention. But first we get the money and then shortly after that, we are given the fear for our money. And if he wants to uh make our fear greater uh, you know, it doesn't take away the money because then we wouldn't be afraid but he, we get even more money so that we're more afraid of losing it you can print it exactly and then you can put it to the extent that we are completely dependent on money and don't see anything beyond that we have blinders on and we only look at money and when that stage is reached it has happened and then you have anxiety, you are fearful, and you are dependent. And when you look at the temptation of Christ, that stone can be turned into bread, that is such a crucial point. It seems so harmless, but think about it. Because that's exactly the problem, that people are afraid. Well, that's what you do with gene technology today. You make uh, turn stones to bread. So we take the 3D printer to print the organs, and it's all nicely done. Technology makes it possible. Yeah, you can translate that into our times. Let's say uh, we do that. We just accepted that. Then, uh, if, if if bread was turned, stone was turned into into bread, then uh, no farmer would work anymore because they wouldn't have to do anything. So the entire agriculture would be so, definitely um, down. Today, you would say you all get a 3D printer. You can just print your food straight away. No, I think the devil would have been finer than that. Uh, he would have said, I'll, I'll make bread and you give me your work. 
Well, that's kind of what we have today. So what happens to Jesus if he'd been concluding that deal with the devil? He still would look like Jesus. Nobody would have understood that. But of course, Jesus resisted. Uh, let's say that he did that. I, I, you know, turn the stones into bread. And once he has the last field, I said, hey, if you don't do what I want, I will take away your power of turning that into into bread and then he has power over you because that's the main thing in Christian faith is that you do exclude that because God does not want that that you are dependent nobody is dependent not even dependent on God and there are many many stories in the New Testament and the Old Testament and I understand that the story of Isaacs uh, from the first book of Moses. Um, so the sacrifice of uh, Isaac, Abra Abram thinks that he has to sacrifice his son. So he prepares the uh, pyre, uh, prepares the wood, and at the very last moment, he's about to kill his son. And then the angel shows up and says, no, don't do it. Do not kill your son. And when I was still, uh, in training, I understood, I read text that uh, we have to live with the fact that sometimes God wants us uh, to provide these sacrifices. That's not true. It's not right. The uh, moral of the story is that God does not want us to do this sacrifice. Definitely not. And in our times, translated into our world, that means that not even for God. And not, and, and and of course, definitely not for anything else. You are uh, allowed to hurt your child, no matter what you use. So that is the translation. I mean, I'm, let's not talk about the knife now. However small the needle may be, to. And if that can lead to the death of a child, there is nothing, nothing that can justify it. Not even God Himself. Uh, no higher values, nothing. You cannot justify injecting a needle in your child. And please uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Mr. Bodak, but from what I understand, there is not a single child that has been healthy has died of a corona infection. Never, yeah, ever. That's right. But we do have cases of children who got very, very sick uh, from inoculation. So, therefore, it is not justified ever to uh, vaccinate children. It's something that uh, we should leave our hands off, because if we don't do that for God, we don't definitely don't have to sacrifice that for anything else. And that is the interpretation in our times. We have these texts in the Bible, uh, in the writing, they are there, and we have to interpret them in a consistent way translate into our times, uh, of course, that runs uh, the peril of getting into trouble, but I decided to take on that trouble. I was very impressed with the story of Luther, where he um, uh, fights against... Uh, so it's always uh, the, he, he fighted against uh, people who wanted to buy their way out. And um, that is something that I wonder. Uh, you pay 
something and then they are well supported and um, you do something for the elderly, you pay something, you do a lot of uh, buying our way out. Um, do you see this in the past two years as well, um, this kind of indulgence in that? Yes, absolutely. Uh, what was it in the times of Luther? Uh, people were told that that the bones of St. Peter and St. Uh, Paul should be kept healthy. And uh, that's why we needed to build the cathedral of St. Peter uh, so that the bones don't uh, die away. But the propaganda was different. Albrecht of Mainz, he was a bishop. He had actually paid the indulgence for this post for this post. He wanted to have that uh, job and he needed to bribe uh, the other princes, but he didn't have the money for that. So what did he do? He uh, then borrowed the money and uh, he borrowed so much that he couldn't pay back his debt. And that's when it started. You have to invent something. So what did he invent? The, he invented the sale of indulgences and people were able to pay their debts. And then you can imagine what uh, Luther's 95 theses, 1517 on the 31st of October, what did they mean? He, in fact, <laughs> ruined this guy's business. And uh, the indulgence, uh, I mean, you know, you see the reactions, uh, Luther, uh, I mean, he made fun of it in his 95 thesis. He says that if the souls are so important uh, to the souls of, 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 of the faithful, why doesn't the Pope buy indulgences for all of them? That would have been a nice reaction, so that's a big joke, actually. But what we had back then, and Luther described it in detail, is the fact that they were plundering Germany with a simple trick, a dirty trick. They made fear, they instilled fear of hell, and then they gave money, they bought these indulgences, and the money was gone. And uh, Frederick the Wise, he tried to work against that. So the first trick he came up with is that he himself bought relics, which uh, were supposed to open the gates uh, of heaven for the faithful. So he had the biggest collection of relics. So his people were the safest in the land, but then he worked, saw that it didn't quite work. So this guy got Luther to come to Wittenberg to uh, basically destroy his uh, collection of relics. And he actually did that, theologically, of course. And then, uh, of course, he protected Luther because he wanted uh, Tetzel not to steal the money of his citizens. So he prohibited uh, Tetzel to sell indulgences in So why do I think of Gazprom now, I wonder? Uh, don't, don't no, not even only Gazprom. You can think of a lot of people. They're not. It's not even their fault. It's just, 
No, no, of course they're not to blame. I, all these mechanisms that you get people to pay and you scare them, all these stupid things, it's constructed stories, tensions between East and West and the weapons are sold and people are uh, brought up against each other. It's not from the people, it's from people who make Absolutely. money. Absolutely. And now look at it. If you think of the sale of indulgences, well, so it was a non-evidence-based promise that with this indulgence you can go to heaven. They took away the people's money. <coughs> managed to do that. And what do they do now? Now they put a step in between. Because back then, if with the help of Martin Luther and other reformers, you understood that this was a bunch of nonsense, then people didn't buy these indulgences anymore. And the business went belly up. But now they did it a little bit differently. It's a simple trick. They just turned one further corner because they say, if the people, if the people had to pay for the masks and the and the vaccination, they would have said, why? What is the benefit of it? Just like at the gas station, you ask, do I use diesel or gas? And people would ask questions. But um, if uh, you know, they tell you at the gas station, ah, I just use water, people wouldn't use it because they think, oh, that's going to ruin my motor. So, uh, you know, with the vaccination, the people thought everything was for free, but that's wrong. Of course, it was paid for before because it was paid for with taxes. So they legally stole money from them and then uh, they bought these vaccines on grow and the companies who wanted that money they made the contracts and paid for it with tax money so i myself don't have the chance to contemplate and to decide if i want to do this indulgence injection or not it's a nice word i had to be solidary that's the point <clears throat> yeah exactly you know solidarity you know just like in the middle ages they said the solidarity with the bones of saint peter and saint paul uh, solidarity and uh, love of the next uh, please don't get me too angry now because i might just get started well that's something you can't demand you can you can feel it you have it to has to be it. right of course it has to be right because that, of course, is the misuse of solidarity, you know, putting it under the headline uh, of, of, of love thy neighbor. Uh, but um, I was accused uh, that uh, I was against uh, the decision of the Synod. Uh, and I said, why? Uh, and I said, thank you. Thank you for passing that on to the press that I, in fact, headed against the decision of the Senate because I was not part of that game. What was that decision? Well, they said that this was an act of brotherly love. And I said, no, that's not true. Uh, and, and then in the central Germany, they looked at it again in the Assembly of Bishops, but still, it is an 
misuse of feelings. It is an abuse. And when you're talking about medicine, it has nothing to do with feelings. From a surgeon, I expect that he's not, uh, you know, feeling pitiful with me, but uh, he is supposed to do his job. And he has to make decisions what is right and what is wrong, what is evident, what can be proven, and if there is no evidence, then you cannot do it. So a lot of things went awfully wrong. And uh, the church was allowed to be used by the government. And I believe that if I say that now, this is the first time they say it publicly, I think that would be the worst case scenario for a church to be against one of those decisions. Because if you, Mr. Vordok, uh, are right with your judgment, then that is not brotherly love, but it's something completely different when you get the vaccination. And what does that, what would that mean for the church? And it's basically true already. But if that comes out, then everybody and everybody understands it, that will be very dangerous and perilous for the church. In 2019, I was uh, attacked strongly because I compared uh, saying that things that are legally prescribed, they are done, and then you think you're on the right side. Um, my constituency was Schleswig, where we demonstrated against the um, mental hospital with lots of mentally ill people and uh, they were brought from there to the um, concentration camps and the doctors played along and the uh, staff played along and they followed the law simply. And when it started, that was 2019, um, the data, the health data are selected, uh, collected now that the uh, doctor's um, secrecy is um, lifted and uh, it's uh, under the name of digitization and research. Uh, all the patient data, um, donations of organs, lots of things simply have been decided that the data have to be centrally collected and uh, uh, collected at a point uh, which uh, was prim primarily uh, controlled by the doctors and he got the majority there, Mr. Spahn did, uh, got the people from the pharmaceutical industry in and Bertelsmann, an external company, got the order, got the job to handle all that patient's data, to process all that patient's data. So most intimate data um, givenly anonymized, but it's not possible to anonymize. You can always trace it back to the person if you have enough data. Um, and it's bad, bad stuff, and it's all legal, even demanded. And doctors go along, and with that, they submit their patients, which is something that is gruesome. And I said, no, it's not always right to do what the law tells you to do or has been decided. Sometimes there are things that are superior to the law because the laws often follow certain interests. We have interest groups. You, the doctors, are obliged to um, protect your patients. Your patients 
undress themselves in front of you and uh, you have to protect them and if a legal body the lawmakers say you have to deliver all of that to us and uh, I did that comparison and I was severely attacked saying that at the time people followed the law as well and that people were killed because of that today nobody is killed but that creates big damage as well today and I think we have to address these things um, uh, not everything which is law is right absolutely not only is it not right uh, that's too weak i think you have to be clearer than that because in the reformation uh, luther uh, basically said it uh, and, and they had article 16 um, on their mind because that uh, you follow the authorities as long as it is done without sin that is where our conscience kicks in and the error is that through this organization, the medical community doesn't make that cho choice anymore. It is organized on a larger level, and it is, uh, you know, 100% made secure that it doesn't go into the wrong hands. And I believe that uh, they did this on purpose. So you have to consider that. And the question is this, again, referring to uh, Article 16, can the individual still make that decision of conscience not to go along if this will lead him into sin? That he cannot do that anymore because it's digitized in such a manner and it is centrally controlled that this decision is not made by the individual anymore. But conscience is something that you uh, cannot suspend. We have to understand that each and every one is responsible for the decisions that he or she makes. And we have to organize that legally so that this uh, decision, this decision of conscience is still there and it can be made in a secured fashion. And if I am supposed to do things where I myself cannot make any decision, I should say no immediately. There is resistance amongst the MDs, which is organized as well in some parts. Sometimes it's only because it costs money and it takes effort, but sometimes, or often, the doctors say, no, that is a uh, privacy of the patient. I'm obliged to the patient. The patient is my partner and not any kind of uh, data submittance because the health insurance have to know what uh, money they get back from the health funds. These are secondary funds. You can't uh, sacrifice patients' privacy for that. There is resistance to that, but it's also complex so technically um, disconnected that it's very difficult to discuss it because if it is simple, if everybody can see it and feel it, that is uh, loss of sight, that is out of sight. And this is why it's important that we address this again and again. 
Yes, and it's a spiritual question because uh, do I belong to myself? If Luther speaks to the first article of Creed, uh, he says, uh, this is my body and also with all the information pertaining to it. And therefore, I may not agree and don't have to uh, agree when uh, somebody uh, simply wants to empower uh, me and obtain all the information about me because God has made us to his image and not to the image of some some machinery. So we need to obey the Lord and nobody else. Sorry if I interrupt you, but I thought it was incredible by Mr. Zerder that he said, uh, uh, we get our dignity back by being able to go to the hairdresser. He does not give me dignity. I get dignity from God and that my dignity is related to my hairstyle. I mean, what kind of understanding is this? Our dignity is that we are made to the image of the Lord and nobody is in between. Well, what Mr. Buddha said, if I told him that I haven't been to the hairdressers for 50 years, I would be completely stripped of any dignity, wouldn't I? But you wanted to say something else. Sorry, I interrupted you. Well, Wolfgang, we have to come to an end because our next guest is waiting. I have a small question and maybe you do as well, or a comment you want to make. I am thinking maybe you have a final comment as well. What about the people who do not uh, uh, refrain from that sin? What does it do to the souls of the people who go along, and how could um, one revert that? Well, we have uh, traditions in our church. Uh, to Going back means is that I understand what I've done wrong. I have to understand my wrongdoing, my guilt. Once I understand what my guilt is, then I have to be contrite. That I'm, I feel contrition, I have to understand it, and I want to better myself. And I have to work on it that I will never repeat it. And then I have to be prepared to make amends. Many things cannot be amended, but certain things, yes. And then, only then, can we speak of forgiveness. It's not a matter of uh, water under the bridge. No, there is more to it than that. The Catholics, they say, oh, it's easy. They only go to confession and then they move on. That's wrong. It's not true uh, at all. That's not the understanding um, of confession. Uh, and we have confession also in the Lutheran Church, but in a different way. We have to see what is it that happened in the last couple of months, what uh, were the instances where we did damage to each other, and we need to understand that. And the most important thing is to look at things again in detail. That's the first step, and to question our doing. And on a societal level, we're not willing to do that yet. There is more to it than that. It's not only individual 
actions and what uh, they had caused, what kind of damage have been caused, but we have to see what are the ramifications and uh, what uh, were the ratios of power and where did money flow. And that is a great task. And if you want to deal with that task, you have a lot to do and you cannot commit any other sins in the meantime, which is good, keeps you from wrongdoing. And it would lead us to a society in which uh, we would probably try to avoid that. Be attentive. That's a chance that we now have. That's an opportunity. And I wonder, how long does it take so long? People ask me that too. Why does it take so long? Well, I think we haven't quite understood and recognized yet what kind of task lies ahead of it. And Martin Luther said in 1531 or 32 in a sermon on St. Michael's, September 21, he said, if we don't want to listen to your angels, then, uh, then uh, these angels uh, will be hidden. And maybe one final point. At the end of the day, you have, we must understand, we understand what is wrong, and then you ask your angels for help. And if we come back to the story of uh, the sacrifice of Isaac, if we don't want to listen to our angels, uh, then you all you have to do is you kick the bucket. And uh, that is the truth. We must listen to our angels, we must listen to God. And we have to be able to appreciate life, life that has been God-given, and it's a beautiful thing to have. Oh, great final word. Thank you very much. Very inspiring, what we've heard. Thank you for joining us here. Wonderful. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you for the discussion. It's been a great pleasure being here today and talking to you directly. Well, could be more personal than on in a Zoom call, but however. It's a beginning, it's a beginning. Yeah, there is potential anyway. <clears throat> oh, so let's uh, carry on with our next guest. Who We've is had him Matthew. in the um, Corona Committee several times, so he's a recurring guest. And um, Matthew, are you there? Uh, yes, I am there. Can you hear me well? Yes, we can hear you and we can also see you. Um, fantastic. Okay, good. All right, I'm, I'm glad to, uh, to be back and to join you for this conversation today. Um, just to be clear before I begin, um, is it about 60 minutes or approximately that I that I have allotted or, or should I squeeze it together more quickly? No, I think it's that's about, so we expect the next guest at like um, in an hour approximately. So I think it's it's okay. about that. So you have a little bit of uh, time. Maybe, um, so uh, you're a journalist, lecturer and historian and um, senior fellow at the Uni American University in Moscow. You're the founder of the, um, of the Canadian Patriot Review and the Rising Tide Foundation. Um, and you're the author of, a, of the Untold History of Canada um, series. Yeah, um, 
It's uh, today uh, we have the the topic that you'd like to talk to us about the the the, the threat of martial law today. Um, yes. So maybe could you? I the the floor is yours. Thank you very much. And uh, yes, I, I'm going to touch upon some of the material that I recently developed, both within an essay that was uh, published uh, about. A, a month ago and a recent documentary that I just composed with a, a collaborator of mine who is an excellent filmmaker on the issue of, a, of an important piece of suppressed history from the 1930s in the, in the United States of America at a moment when fascism was very clearly being sold to the American people as well as to the Europeans as well as to the Canadians as the great miracle solution to solve all of our problems that were befalling us during the dark years of the Great Depression. And this is a story which I had first come across many years ago, um, but I didn't think too deeply about it until more recently. And it's the story of a gentleman named General Smedley Butler, a retired general, the most decorated ar army officer um, in the history, even to this very day, um, who had gotten tired at a certain point of being a weapon used by financiers, uh, Standard Oil, uh, JP Morgan, other international financiers were using him and using the US military for, for his entire career, especially since the days of, of Teddy Roosevelt at the turn of the century to install puppet governments in South America, in Asia, in Africa. And at a certain point, he got sick of it and decided to begin campaigning to end the proto-military industrial complex. Mm -hmm. He was also somebody who was recruited or there was an effort to recruit him on the part of certain Wall Street financiers who had been funding fascism, the growth of Hitler, the growth of Mussolini, the growth of Franco, and the growth of the American fascist movements that had swastikas inside of the United States. They wanted to recruit him in order to use him as a, um, a leader of American striking legionnaires. So I, and, and that was going to be used to install him as the new dictator, the new fascist dictator that would be responsive to the, the edicts and commands of Wall Street and London inside of the United States, having deposed Franklin Roosevelt, who had been the president at that time. So this documentary that I did, I, I wanna summarize some elements of it and encourage people to watch it um, and think a little bit about how this impacts today's world, because in today's uh, moment in history, we certainly see a repetition of some of the worst ideas of the 20th century all coming at the same time, right? We have a, uh, just like the Great Depression of 1929 was orchestrated as a controlled demolition on a certain moment when those in the know had um, basically called in their broker call loans. This is a, a certain moment called Black Tuesday. And, uh, and there was a pinprick of a bubble that had been created throughout the 1920s of a speculative bubble built upon debts that were unpayable. And when the certain loans were called in by the brokers who were taking out, I mean, loans that overvalued the stock markets by about eightfold, nobody had the money to pay those broker call loans and everything defaulted, resulting in a very foreseeable chain reaction collapse and the complete destruction of the of the overall economy, which spread all across Europe like fire. The suicides were astronomical. 
Millions of people died of starvation throughout this entire period, which continued deep into the 1930s. Farms, I think the U.S. lost something like 40% of their farms that went bankrupt. 50% of the industrial capacity that was there in 1929 was lost. Um, and you had the biggest wealth, wealth transfer that we had ever seen, perhaps only exceeded by today's world. But those who were on the, you know, the preferred clients list of JP Morgan, who understood what was going to happen, were able to sell their stocks short before the blowout and then buy up for pennies on the dollar. All of the things that used to be owned by farmers, small and medium, Mittelstand type um, workers, entrepreneurs. And in this documentary, I try to make the case that it's not like the, it's called the business coup, but it's not like this was done for business because those who had been captured, many of the levers of production throughout the 1929, 30, 31, 32 period, they didn't use their newfound powers to increase production of agriculture or industry. In fact, what we saw was that we had a contraction and an increase of scarcity artificially created, even though they had the power and the means to increase those um those zones of production, which are so vital for the maintenance of human health and well-being. So there was a shock therapy and a conscious effort to traumatize, psycho-spiritually um, victimize the population, both in America and Europe, in order to make people more radicalizable, more acceptant of forms of government that they would normally never accept. Ideas like, for example, eugenics, which is the, one of the most unchristian, unimmoral forms of pseudosciences was being sold and becoming very popular. Um, the idea that, you know, if we could only just euthanize the useless eaters, right? Get rid of the, those who had low IQs, who had, who are lesser of, of lesser value to society, then we could have more abundance for the healthy among us. Um, there was a very big tendency amongst the fear and despair to blame, to look for scapegoats. And rather than finding the scapegoats it, rightfully where they should have been, with the, and here I'm referring to the actual Wall Street and City of London financiers. Instead, it was often redirected towards a hate for things like the Jews or something like that, that absorbed a lot of the hate. Um, so you had something very radicalized. And I put together a few slides. Um, I'm gonna just do a little screen share here uh, because I think it's, it's a very important um, series of images, which one really has to see to believe. If people want to see the documentary in full, they can watch it here. That's the hyperlink. It's called Why Assume There Will Be Another Election? General Butler in the 1934 Bankers Coup Revisited. It's about 20 minutes long. It's not too long. And the, all of our documentaries can be seen there at canadianpatriot.org backslash cp slash videos. I'm going to add one thing because yesterday we know that the Queen died and uh, Operation what's called Unicorn I don't know why they call it that, was unveiled, uh, which was basically uh, an operation to set into motion a sequence of operations that would result in the inauguration of uh, Prince Charles as the new king, King Charles III, um, as the king of Britain, as well as the broader Commonwealth of 52, I believe it's 52 or 53 uh, nations of the world are part of the British Commonwealth, 22% of the world's surface area, including the Cayman Islands, including a lot of the, a lot of the levers of global drug money laundering, global terrorist financing. Um, here I'm talking about, again, the Virgin Islands, other things that are in British-controlled territory, very opaque. This is all part of the global mechanisms of, of control. 
So Prince Charles is inheriting quite a bit. Um, so I, I figured this particular presentation I'm doing would not be complete or, or correct if I didn't say a word or two about the developments in Britain. Um, and these are very much tied to the danger of a coup in the United States. I, I, they're not two different ideas. Um, most people think of Prince Charles as a doofus. Oh, can people see my, my video or my, my images right now? Yeah, but I would also like if that's possible to see them on the large screen so uh, I yes. can see them better. Okay. Well, I'll just, I'll just continue. You, yeah, so, just go uh, ahead. Yeah, many people do tend to think of Prince Charles, now King Charles, or soon to be, um, as a bit of a doofus. And I, I don't think that they're wrong, uh, who likes to talk to plants and, you know, gives money to uh, young scientists who try to come up with new gimmicks to to collect cow farts and put masks on cows to, to collect their CO2. Um, they think of him as sort of like a, a, a zany type of character. Um, I think that there's something also bubbling below the surface, which is a little bit more concerning. So he does have a goofy quality about him, but there's something also darker where he does see himself, you know, you got to feel bad for some of these royals who are born into a very controlled environment their entire lives. They're being told they're the heirs to the ancient and immutable permanent empire. And I mean, they're, they're surrounded by flatterers, handlers. I mean, it, and they're used for a certain reason. Um, the fact that when the Great Reset in June of 2020 was unveiled, the fact that it wasn't Klaus Schwab, it wasn't Bill Gates who unveiled, who were selected to unveil the Great Reset. It wasn't any of these people you would expect. It, it was, in fact, Prince Charles. Prince Charles sees himself as a bit of an eco-warrior crusader king, except in today's world, the, the new crusade is not against the Muslim world in the Holy Land, um, but rather it is against human beings themselves, or at least the things that sustain human life, the the need for food creation that is under attack the idea of carbon dioxide emissions which are the outgrowth of having industrial civilization without the which you cannot have eight billion people or even four billion people or even three billion people if you remove the industrial uh, powers of production that have been built up over the past 200 years by attacking something like carbon dioxide and, and saying that statistically we can cause we can make a case that this is the cause of tornadoes you know the the weather <laughs> and and scare people then by demonizing co2 which is something humans breathe out it is something plants breathe in it is plant food you can then give people or make people actually destroy themselves or at least severely limit and curtail their population levels and standards of life that is actually what is an ide ideology an idea that is had has been animating the entire growth of the green new deal ideology for the past decades and so Prince Charles, if you look at his career as, as well as that of his father, Prince Philip, who recently just, uh, passed away and who wished to be reborn as a uh, or reincarnated as a deadly virus in order to solve overpopulation. That's something he said several times. Uh, it's it's filthy um, and, and a strange ideology, but it's a serious one. He does see himself as this activist king. Um, we have things, you know, Queen Elizabeth, uh, think of her as you will, but she was smarter. She was able to not speak so candidly about her, her actual thoughts. She kept it to herself. She was able to give the image as, as though she was more in the background, not doing much as the symbol. Whereas Charles, it is very clear that he ha has been accused of incontinent lobbying. You know, you have things like the spider letters or the spider memos. 
that have been unveiled where it demonstrated that he has been an aggressive lobbyist, uh, you know, putting pressure on various elected government officials to pass environmental legislation over the years. And he's made it very clear through his activism within um, various World Economic Forum events, especially the, the announcing and the unveiling of the Great Reset as its key patron, that he sees a very, or it is a very important role as being uh, set up for him to play. This is not unheard of. And this is, by the way, a little low resolution quote that I found when he unveiled the Great Reset on June 3rd, 2020, as we move from rescue to recovery, again, June 3rd, 2020, we have a unique but rapidly shrinking window of opportunity to learn lessons and reset ourselves on a more sustainable path. It is an opportunity we have never had before and may never have again. We must use all the levers we have at our disposal, knowing that each and every one of us has a vital role to play. The actual intention behind this, as, as I think all of the viewers know, if people are watching your show right now, they are they have made their own discoveries. There is a return towards something which is uh, a neo-eugenics ideology masquerading behind the fourth industrial Re revolution, something known as transhumanism, the idea that we have a, uh, uh, a mission for those elite among us who, can, who will be able to control the levers of evolution by controlling test tube babies, CRISPR modified children, uh, CRISPR food, um, the merging of humans with uh, machinery, which people like Elon Musk, as well as Mark Zuckerberg, as well as Yuval Harari and many others, uh, Ray Kurzweil, all uh, who navigate around the Klaus Schwabian networks all believe this. Klaus Schwab himself has said that this is the destiny of humankind. These are transhumanists, but in reality, the transhumanists are just neo-eugenicists. And you could trace the ideology, the rise of transhumanism as it was created by people like Julian Huxley. Julian Huxley, who of course co-founded the World Wildlife Fund for Nature in 1961, who at the same time as he was creating transhumanism or codifying it, he creates the World Wildlife Fund alongside Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands, as well as Prince Philip Montbatten, the father of, of Charles. And these gentlemen, become essentially the founding fathers of today's Green New Deal. The idea had, was at the, at the very root, not really to save nature. We all want a world without pollution. That's fine. That's a, that's a noble endeavor. We all want a world with healthy food and green spaces. That's fine too. But what they did is a bit of a sleight of hand. And what was really done throughout the 1960s and the rise of this new ideology was to refocus attention upon saving nature from human beings themselves, assuming, of course, that only the only thing that human beings could do when we build infrastructure is destroy nature. The only thing when we increase abundance by leaping over the limits to growth that are always pressing upon us, when we make discoveries and translate that to new technologies, all we can do is hurt nature. And so the very act of that, that quality of thinking about the nation and the people within it, the citizens as uh, creators rather than simply consumers was declared uh, verboten mm -hmm. and a new logic of, again, reducing the human impact onto nature became the new governing ideology. And Prince Bernhard wasn't just doing World Wildlife Fund. He was also doing uh, the Bilderberger Group. He was the, the patron of the World Economic Forum of 1973 that codified um, the idea of, of stakeholder capitalism. Um, and the entire Davos, Davos Manifesto. 
The Club of Rome, which was also patronized by these people, brought in computer modeling, the idea that you can measure the limits to population and optimal population levels by simply using linear equations in computers. This is something that was again brought into Davos in 1973, patronized by Prince Philip, um, when the Club of Rome was brought in and, and this was unveiled as the new standard, the new norm for uh, managing global population levels. So there is something that um, these oligarchs are afraid of. They're not immutable, they're not all powerful, and they have been defeated many times before. And I've said this in various locations, including uh, the last time I spoke here, but I'm gonna say this in a new way. Um, today inside of the United States, people are, are nervous, they see images like this. They've, I've listened to the, the Biden speech um, at Independence Hall, which was the hall selected in Philadelphia where the Declaration of Independence was signed. There's a lot of imagery being uh, cooked up around you know, the greatness of, of the United States, of George Washington, the great sacrifices. But in the same measure as, as these things are, are being done, and his speech was called Saving the Soul of America, it is actually a little bit more reflective of something we saw arise in 1933 Germany, as well as some things happening inside of the United States around that same time of the 1930s, as I alluded to, and we'll see a little bit more of. Um, the, in the context of Biden's speech, he went, and it's very uncomfortable, I, I think for those who haven't watched it, they should watch this speech. Um, he literally declares half of, if not more, of the American population enemies of the state without, I mean, by calling them anybody who is a Republican who likes Trump, he basically called a quasi-fascist. Um, he was alluding that every, every Republican who is simply sick of critical race theory or is, does not want a great reset are extremists, uh, alluding to domestic, even terrorists. It wasn't uh, even just a couple of days before that, or no, it was after that, that um, we had, no, it was a few days before that, that we had the, the National Defense Authorization Act of 2022, which not only on a foreign policy level outlined the primary threats to the United States as being Russia, China, the, the multipolar alliance in Eurasia, basically setting the stage for an, a major war. Um, but internally, it gave a disturbing amount of powers to the executive of the US government for the first time ever to use the military in internal and domestic affairs. This is something which I don't think Biden necessarily has the mind, the brains, the wits to necessarily use. And I don't even think that when you look at his performance, it doesn't seem like there is an intention to use Biden very, for very long. Um, there's probably something that will be brought in to replace him. I mean, the, 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 the man is, his, his brain is melting. He can't compose a full sentence half the time unless they pump him with drugs. Um, <clears throat> so there's something that is very dangerous as far as this precedent is concerned. I don't know exactly what will be the excuse to bring in something else, but having the, the executive branch that has the power of the budget over the US military and the ability to deploy the US military in internal affairs is again, unprecedented and that it bypasses Congress, Senate and any elected body is, uh, is very, very dangerous. It actually, it reeks of something that we had seen after the Reichstag fire um, in the early thirties and the unveiling of Hitler's enabling acts, uh, which gave undue amounts of unconstitutional authority to the executive branch in Germany, which of course were promised to be returned to the people as soon as the crisis would be uh, put put down, the crisis being caused by the apparent, you know, the communists who burnt down the German Reichstag, which in hindsight, historians have proved quite thoroughly 
was actually an inside job done by the SS, not very different from some of the inside jobs we've seen since 9-11, including 9-11 itself, I would say. There's a lot of evidence that that's actually not the official story. The anthrax attacks that justified the growth of the entire biosecurity apparatus run by the Pentagon internationally, where there's over, I believe last time I, last thing I read from the Russian um, foreign ministry was that the estimate is about 327 international biolabs connected in various ways to the U.S. Pentagon, all opaque. No one knows what goes on. I mean, everyone talks about Wuhan and the, uh, what was it, $800,000 that Fauci gave to Wuhan, and that's bad. That should be looked at through EcoHealth Alliance, but nobody really talks <laughs> about the 327 U.S. biolabs that have grown out of the anthrax attacks, um, which all have a certain mandate following the Project for New America, American Century in 2000, uh, the Rebuilding America's Defenses, which outlined the purpose of biowarfare as being something that could become a politically useful tool by targeting selected genomes and uh, ethnic stock of various people, Han Chinese, Slavs, everything else. This was outlined by people like uh, Vic, Robert Kagan, uh, Paul Wolflitz, when they wrote this. And these are the same orchestrators who pulled off 9-11 and the entire um, surveillance state inside of the United States, as well as global regime change operation that sprang out of that internationally. So you got something which is similar. Just one question. Yep. So these sure. biolabs, they they have mm. um, this giant amount of biolabs that has only surfaced after these uh, the, the project for the new American century was started. Is that? Yeah. Yeah, there, there was a U.S. bio um, warfare uh, component since, I mean, really since Hiro Ishii, who was the um, one of the key figures in Japan who carried out the uh, the weaponization of bacteria, of different biowarfare operations that killed upwards of 10 million POWs, Han Chinese victims, uh, Russians, Americans during World War II. Hiro Ishii and his, I think it's Unit 731 was absorbed after uh, the after World War II into Fort Detrick, Maryland. Mm -hmm. And they were basically put to work, bringing their, their studies, very Mengele-like work, into the US military industrial complex, um, which grew, carried out experiments in Korea, where the US has remained to this very day. There's still 28,000 US troops in Korea. The, the scars of the Korean War were never fully healed. Um, Japan is, is still a US military colony, and throughout the entire you know, 1950s, 60s, 70s, there was experimentation that we know was done on the American people, especially on blacks, um, who were given, you know, syphilis and, and not given the proper treatments just to see what would happen to them, right? Um, but it really exploded hyperbolically after anthrax. So after the attacks, which was again begun in September 18th, we're coming to the anniversary. Um, there was a low-level person working at Fort Detrick who was thrown under the bus given solitary confinement and died in prison in 20, I think, 2009. He was blamed as just being somebody who watched a, an Al-Qaeda video, got radicalized and stole anthrax and started mailing it to elected officials. Now, again, there's been books written about this, including the anthrax deception and other things that have proven that this was actually not the case. This was an inside job. Um, this poor schmuck didn't know what was going on. He was essentially sacrificed. But the consequence of these several months of anthrax letters justified what became Dick Cheney's BioShield Act, um, which created a, a pot of, a, at first, I think it was $5 billion immediately to start building up bio bioweapons 
uh, laboratories in Georgia, in Ukraine. Uh, Obama was on the ground in Georgia um, with a Rhodes Scholar uh, senator, I'm forgetting his name all of a sudden, um, setting up some of these labs in 2005. And again, this expanded more and more throughout Obama's regime when this was grown in the uh, case of South Korea in the Jupiter and Centaur programs, which have resulted in mass protests by the Korean people in Korea because the U.S. is running an independent, massive array of bioweapons complexes right there on, on China's perimeter, uh, which is undoubtedly looking, as, as the, the Project for New American Century group even said, and you can read their writings, it's looking at specifically ethnic targeting of uh, genomes that would such, such that the same type of pathogen created in a laboratory would have maybe a mild effect on one gene uh, genotype, one ethnic stock, and a very destructive effect on another ethnic stock. So, I mean, for example, if people look at some of the strange effects early on, whenever, whenever um, this thing was deployed onto the world in uh, January, even December of uh, 2020, 2019, the Iranian population had a very negative, a, a strange reaction. The, the Italians also had a strange reaction. The, the Chinese people were collapsing in the hundreds. And you're like, well, either you're faking it or whatever this is, is hurting, uh, is affecting your ethnic stocks very differently than it's affecting a lot of the Western Europeans. So that's something to keep in the back of the mind, my mind. I don't have the full answers, but that's something that a lot of uh, leading figures around the world, especially in Eurasia, have been looking at and are very concerned about. So yes, this grew hyperbolically after 9-11. Mm -hmm. okay. um, so <clears throat> this has been stopped. I mean, what, what we're seeing now is, yes, there could be a danger of a new um, crisis that is sprung onto the American people yet again um, that would justify a, an advanced form of enabling acts already what we've seen with the NDAA um, bill that I just pointed out is very startling. Um, but we don't know. We just have to be aware of the precedence of history and what was done to stop these sorts of things from happening in the past. Of course, in the case of Germany, we didn't have the proper leadership that was able to wrestle power away from Hitler, despite the fact that he, you know, the population did not necessarily love Hitler. It's just that there was a lot of, of foreign influence Wall Street money pouring loans in the tens of millions by people like Prescott Bush in 1933 into a bankrupt Nazi coffer when Hitler was even contemplating suicide, or 32. Um, you had the Bank of England, Montague Norman, working with Hjalmar Schacht, working very heavily to provide support, patronage, as well as financial backing towards the rise of the Nazi machine, as well as fascism in, again, Spain, uh, France, England, which we'll talk about. So in the case of the United States, they could have gone fascist. It was very close. Roosevelt was the only anti-fascist who decided to sabotage the first Great Reset Conference in London, overseen by then King, um, the King of England, and sponsored by the League of Nations and the Bank of International Settlements, which was supposed to create a new world government, a new regime above nation states to tell nations how they had to cut back and balance their budgets. That was the London Conference of 1933. It didn't work. There was no world government that came out of that as there was expected to because Franklin Roosevelt had the, the wits to pull the U.S. delegation out and torpedo the conference after six months. He then declared war on Wall Street banks. He did this by passing Glass-Steagall, uh, breaking up the banks, putting hundreds of bankers in jail for the crimes, including the leading bankers from Chase Manhattan and others, 
um, who had been advising Mussolini, who had been promoting the growth again of Hitler uh, or a Hitler-like policy in the United States. These were the, the agencies that uh, they went to jail. We didn't see any of that since 2008 in America. Not a single person went to jail of any of any value. And inside of the United States itself, all the way up until 1939, there were Nazi rallies. What you see there is one major rally, 20,000 people at Madison Square Garden, New York, in February, um, with a picture of George Washington, the American flag, very patriotic, right? This was actually George Washington's birthday, was the symbolic moments decided to celebrate this. There were stormtroopers in the aisles. And if you see that there's something a little bit disturbing on either side of the American flag, there are these strange little symbols, these swastikas. Mm -hmm. So this was uh, not attended by just a few people. Like right. I said, 20,000 people, it was a full house. Uh, children were brought up with their honor guard of American flags and little swastikas. Um, there were summer camps, run Nazi summer camps throughout the United States in the 1930s, training children into a, a Nazi-like ideology. The funding of a lot of these things came again from a lot of the same financiers uh, who had sponsored an attempted murder of Franklin Roosevelt in February of 1932, uh, th sorry, 33, before his inauguration, but after his election. And there was a Freemasonic uh, assassin named Giuseppe Zangara who took five shots in a crowd against Roosevelt. And luckily a woman in the crowd hit his hand just in time. And five people were shot, not Roosevelt. He, he just avoided getting killed. Mayor Cermak of Chicago, unfortunately, Anton Cermak did get killed a few, about two weeks later, he died of his wounds. And there was never an investigation, strangely enough. Giuseppe Zangara, the anarchist Freemason, uh, was put speedily on the, uh, the death path towards the electric chair and no inquiry ever was made. However, Roosevelt was not stupid. He knew what the power was embedded within the United States that had taken over um, over years and years. Smedley Butler talked about this too. In, uh, in Canada, just to make it clear, these are just is one, what's called the Rally of Blue Shirts in Quebec with Adrian Arcand, the Canadian Fuhrer. Uh, this is the symbolism that was all over uh, Adrian Arcand's media enterprises. He had several, like something like nine journals a huge amount of influence. He worked very closely with the, the conservative, conservative par party of R.B. Bennett of the time to keep out the liberals. At the time, the liberals were not fascist yet, just like the Democrats in America were not, were not the party of fascism. It took a while for the virus to take over uh, the host of the, the liberal party and, and in, in America, the Democratic Party. Um, so this was a common sight. In Britain, you had Oswald Mosley and the United um, Union of Fascists that had pushed, ironically, for not just a global Britain or, or a, uh, what's called, a, yeah, you call it global Britain. Um, just like today's very similar in an eerie way to today's Liz Truss policy of global Britain, right? The reconsolidation of the global British Commonwealth as the new dominant power block with an absorbed USA in the fold. And the USA, keep in mind, under the control of the deep state, uh, like, for example, Biden what, and what he represents has always been um, influenced by an operation which is not American. That's something that I go through in my book series. Anybody who wants to know what took over over the dead bodies of John F. Kennedy or Bobby Kennedy need to understand that it wasn't an American operation. It was primarily the same British empire with its covert operations, um, in, including the Five Eyes, including the city of London with its Wall Street tentacles, everything. This is what has taken over control of the US just as, as this operation took control of Germany over the dead bodies of people like 
Kurt von Schleicher, who died at the, the light of the night of the long knives and wanted to use the military force um, of America, just like they wanted to use the force of Germany, like a, a, a dumb giant to be deployed as a weapon to crush poor countries of the world and subdue them under a banker's dominion. So this is the, the, the part of an analysis of fascism that I think is much more authentic, though it's not taught this way in school. It's, it's very much caricaturized as something that could never happen again. It was so bad. It'll never happen again. And it's like, well, we're eating bugs for Christ's sakes, you know, like, <laughs> or that's what they want us to do. Um, euthanasia is, is again, making a huge, I mean, the, the euthanasia uh, program in Canada has spiked something like 30%, 35% in just one year, which is being seen as a massive cost-cutting uh, procedure by budget, budget uh, fixators in the Canadian government. Um, so there's a program that is very similar in many ways to the useless eaters policy of Germany. Um, so Oswald Mosley was a force. He was being patronized as well by the king himself, um, King Edward VIII. This is the king with Hitler and his wife in 1936. He was, uh, here is a picture recently disclosed video of, of King Edward teaching his young niece, uh, Elizabeth, I think she's maybe eight years old, how to do the Hitler salute. Um, people can see this thing online. Now, in the case of Britain, there was a certain realization on the part of some of the grand strategists that Hitler was being increasingly unwieldy and that he wasn't so willing to just obey orders as he was expected to do and instead wanted to use the military power that he had cultivated um, as a way to be not a junior partner in a new world order, but rather become a dominant force in the new world order. And of course, have Britain play a very important role as a sister Anglo-Saxon you know, society of, of, of purebreds that would then have a responsibility. And Hitler talks about this with Lord Lothian, um, Philip Kerr, um, in discussions in 1937. But you know, Hitler openly discussed the need for for Britain to control India in the uh, New World Order, as well as big chunks of Africa. Japan, of course, would would control China. Uh, Germany would control Russia as a slave colony. That was openly acknowledged. The Slavs were, you know, inferior untermenschen. Um, the American British fascists would divvy up control of South America and North America. Franco would have his little area as well in South America as well. But there was a, a certain agreed upon carving up of the world under fascist governments, but themselves all beholden to a one world government. Now, um, King Edward VIII himself wrote letters even after he was ousted, because there was a decision at a certain point to get rid of the pro-Nazi king, as well as later on the pro-Nazi uh, Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain. Um, but he... And the idea was, okay, well, this, this plan is, is backfiring on the British Empire. Let's try to uh, abort and fight another day. Let's, let's consolidate power in another way. This is too messy. Not, not every Brit British uh, oligarch agreed with this. And again, he represented, along with Oswald Mosley and many others, a pro-fascist view all the way throughout the war. And even when the war began against Britain, he was still writing letters from his uh, base of operations in Portugal when he was, he was forced to abdicate, right? saying to Hitler, I will be your Nazi king. Just bomb Britain, make them soft, make them submit, and put me back into power. I will, I will be in charge for you. I will be your enthusiastic, your enthusiastic um, enforcer. 
And the entire time he was encouraging Hitler, and these are letters that have become public. I mean, this is not me making things up. This is real. He was encouraging uh, Hitler to launch more bombs on civilian targets in Britain to soften them up. Um, it's a big point of embarrassment. But again, as, as, I, as I alluded to, even though that plan for a new world order was sabotaged, it was, it was aborted, despite that, the, the ideology of a global fascist world government, when you look at Prince Bernhardt of the Netherlands, you look at Prince Philip Mombatin, you look at Julian Huxley and his creation of a retooled eugenics ideology, the, the idea of a, of a post-nation state world order, they didn't go away, they just changed costumes. And the royal family did not simply become a peace-loving democratic family. That never happened, only in, in name. So just to see my time limit here, I don't wanna go over. Oh yeah, we're okay. So just to route it up here, um, inside of the United States, there was a massive fight. And this fight has been written out of the history books as well. This is Senator Norris, who led several uh, congressional committees uh, and, and Senate committees, um, or no, um, mixing up my, was he? He was a senator, so it would have been Senate committees on banking. With a picture just demonstrating how Wall Street controls all of the levers of industry and what to do about it. He had employed, uh, when Franklin Roosevelt came in, he gave greater powers to um, Ferdinand Picora, an attorney, a very moral Italian attorney, a Christian, who was the chair of this uh, of this commission on uh, on banking and the abuses of Wall Street that created the depression, and he's the one who pulled he dragged J.P. Morgan Jr. into court along with other leading bankers and proved that they not only never paid taxes they defrauded their people their their investors by selling junk bonds by uh, lying to the people about the nature of the depression by selling short he proved all of this and made it public. And again, Franklin Roosevelt gave him broad subpoena powers to do everything needed. Um, and with that, they were able to, especially with the with FDR surviving the assassination attempt, use this to help the people of America understand what happened to them. This was able to temper the hate against the Jews, against you know the the, the love of eugenics that people were supporting. They were that was tempered as they they had better under a better understanding of the role of who was pushing this great reset. Who was, who were these criminals? And this educational process was very important. And that gave Roosevelt the power to break up the banks, to create the Security Exchange Commission, to put the banks through bankruptcy receivership. You know, uh, something like 25 or 30% of the banks had to be uh, simply eliminated in America because of their abuses. And then unleash large scale credit through the Reconstruction Finance Corporation that built the Tennessee Valley Authority that transformed and electrified the entire rural South from being backwater, ignorant zones of, you know, hillbillies, mostly into the advanced aerodynamic sector that, we, that it came to be known as um, throughout the age of aerospace, NASA, the 1950s and beyond. All of these things was a multifaceted battle on so many levels. So this had to be stopped. And there was one attempt to depose Roosevelt, which is the substance of my documentary. Butler, I don't know why they selected Butler. I think they just thought that everyone was corruptible, that, every, that Butler was just angry that he was not getting a bigger piece of the pie for all the work he did for Standard Oil and J.P. Morgan overthrowing governments. And when he became an activist uh, general, uh, giving speeches all over the United States to uh, veterans of World War I, they thought that they could buy him, that they could use him, and that because he was trusted and loved, he could be the leader that was needed to care, to lead 500,000 troops um, or former World War I veterans to take over the White House 
And he wrote, I mean, this is in 1933. He um, gave a speech when he said, I have spent 30, 33 years being a high class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street and for the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer for capitalism. I helped purify Nicaragua for the international banking houses of Brown Brothers from 1909 to 1912, um, which is also the Montague Norman family bank as well, the Brown Bank. Um, I helped make Mexico and especially Tapico safe for American oil interests in 1916. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National Citibank boys to collect revenue. I helped rape half a dozen Central American republics for the benefit of Wall Street. In China, I helped see to it that Standard Oil went its way unmolested. I had a swell racket. I was rewarded with honors, medals, and promotions. I might have given Al Capone a few hints. The best he could do was operate a racket in three cities. The Marines operated in three continents. That's explosive. That made them a lot of enemies, but they, but somehow the JP Morgan group still thought that they could use him. And you had several representatives, Grayson Prevost Murphy, uh, Bill Jones, bond salesman, um, who approached him saying, you know, we can offer you a lot of money. And, and this guy Roosevelt is really not doing his job. I think we need to just get a proper fascist government in that could give hope and, and put bread on the table and build trains build infrastructure. It could be you. You're the guy. And uh, Smedley Butler played along for about eight or eight months or so just to see if he could get names, figure out how far up the ladder this went. And he got the names. And in November 1934, he went to Congress and blew the whistle. I'll say a bit more about that. But just so people understand the precariousness of Roosevelt's situation. These are this is just one clip of the tens of thousands of striking World War One veterans who did not receive their bonus pay that had been promised to them because there was a Great Depression, the, the, the money wasn't available. And uh, Washington, D.C. was shut down in many ways. There were fires lit, riots lit. There were constant speeches every day. Um, it, this got violent as well on, on a variety of levels. But yeah, I mean, that's a big story. But this is a huge network. All over America, you had these uh, striker, striking World War I veterans, big time in America. They were ripe to, they, they wanted to take over, or many of the people were so frustrated, they were so damaged from the Great Depression, they wanted something. And they were, they were ready to become enforcers of fascism. And even the, the president of the American Legion, the American Legion is the head of, of these veterans. Alvin Owsley was a leading fascist. And in 1921, he wrote, if need be, the American Legion is ready to protect the institutions of this country and its ideals in the same way as the fascists have treated the destructive forces threatening Italy. Don't forget that fascists are for today's Italy what Ameri the American Legion is for the United States. So it's very, it was a very self-consciously, self-aware fascist um, operation. Not that every individual within it necessarily was fascist, but that's what was controlling the, uh, the machine. Not exactly, you know, the, the, the mild old veterans that we tend to think of the Legion as today. So I want to simply do one thing, which is share a one minute video clip um, by Smedley Butler. So he went to Congress. They did a one month inquiry into uh, this JP Morgan operation. They found all of the networks around Prescott Bush, uh, the DuPonts, the, um, the major industrialists that had been funding the growth of fascism were also funding the American Liberty League. They were funding the growth of American Nazism. They were funding the assassination and they were funding the attempted banker's coup to overthrow Roosevelt. Um, so Smedley Butler was a bit angry because Franklin Roosevelt didn't use the congressional hearings 
directly to, to go on the attack against Wall Street. Uh, Roosevelt was playing, I think, a bit of a dangerous game, thinking he could negotiate with some of these, these monsters. And maybe to a certain degree, he was able to get them on a leash to behave, but it blew up in his face. And his early death, no autopsy in, in 1945, right before the first uh, United Nations conference, I think is testimony to how he overlooked his own capacity to do, do battle with this deep state operation within the United States. But so Smedley Butler went to the media, he went to a film producer and broadcast this following message to the American people, which I think should be listened to here. It starts at the 10th second. So if somebody could play that, I think the producer, if not, I can do it. There it is. I appeared before the Congressional Committee, the highest representation of the American people under subpoena to tell what I knew of activities, which I believe might lead to an attempt to set up a fascist dictatorship. The plan as outlined to me was to form an organization of veterans, to use as a bluff or as a club at least, to intimidate the government and break down our democratic institutions. The upshot of the whole thing was that I was supposed to lead an organization of 500,000 men which would be able to take over the functions of government. I talked with an investigator for this committee who came to me with a subpoena on a Sunday, November 18th. He told me they had unearthed evidence linking my name with several such veteran organizations. As it then seemed to me to be getting serious, I felt it was my duty to tell all I knew of such activities to this committee. My main interest in all this is to preserve our democratic institutions. I want to retain the right to vote, the right to speak freely, and the right to write. If we maintain these basic principles, our democracy is safe. No dictatorship can exist with suffrage, freedom of speech, and press. Wow. Good. Yeah. And uh, what he did was very important. It was very courageous. He unfortunately uh, died the year after giving that speech. And his book, a War, is a War is a Racket, is a very good and very small essay that is worth reading to this very day. Um, this did turn the tide. I mean, people today get a little, I think, depressed looking at the growth of the powers of evil. Um, and they don't really, they lose sense of what is available to the people today um, to work with, to utilize. And how has this great reset New World Order ideology been defeated in the past? And it's really only by looking at the past from the standpoint of seeing how how it didn't get so much worse than it could have been, right? It could have been so much worse. And there were fights, there were sacrifices, there was drama that has resulted in at least, as far as I can count, three major attempts to consolidate a new world order from 1921-22 under the League of Nations, which was subverted by patriots in America, in Canada, in Ireland, that didn't want to get rid of their, their sovereignty in favor of a one world government. Um, Warren Harding, unfortunately, the president did die while uh, in office, as, as did several other people, including Walter Rathenhau, the German finance minister who was assassinated by an operation that became absorbed by Hitler's, basically the, the, the Hitler stormtrooper operation of the organization Konsul, along with 300 other elected representatives of Germany, who were all uh, reticent to give up control of their sovereignty. Um, but America played a key role. America has been targeted for destruction, as has Germany. 
Um, again, in 1933, like I said, there was an, an effort made by the London Conference to create a great reset, a one world government under the control of the Bank of International Settlements, the Bank of England and the League of Nations, which was subverted by Franklin Roosevelt, who then declared war to break up the Wall Street power structure in his own way and force them to behave according to a higher constitutional law by building up the sorts of big projects that we've never seen before. We've only seen something similar to the sorts of projects built up under Lincoln. And today, in today's world, we see a certain form of that in the form of the Belt and Road Initiative and the idea of long-term credit emissions for large-scale infrastructure, science, technology, which increase abundance. It increases education, the ability of the power of mind of people to make discoveries and translate those to leap over the, li the limits to growth. That's why the oligarchy doesn't want people smart. They don't want people to have abundance because they want us to live in a small and diminishing cage of finite resources. And the more we think that all we can do is act like other forms of creatures in the ecosystem by adaption to a controlled situation, they can keep that, that cage growing smaller and smaller. And we won't think anything about solutions that involve activating creativity, activating new discoveries, right? Greening deserts, desalinating water that could involve greening California, which is, I mean, a, ma a major, major point of crisis today. That can be green. Um, and I got two last quotes and then I'll stop. Ferdinand Pecora in 1939, who ran the, the Pecora Commission, which was, like I said, the key commission with Senator Norris that broke up the banks, that pulled JP Morgan into court, that sent bankers to jail. Um, he wrote a book called Wall Street Under Oath. And he wrote saying, under the surface of the of governmental regulation of the securities market, the same forces that produce the riotous speculative excesses of the wild bull market of 1929 still give evidence of their existence and influence. Though repressed for the present, it cannot be doubted that given a suitable opportunity, they would spring back to their pernicious activity. And Henry Wallace, the last quote, the former vice president under uh, Franklin Roosevelt, who at this point became, he was downgraded under Truman to become commerce secretary. And right after he gave this uh, speech, he was fired and labeled a red commie agent, along with all of the, the Franklin Roosevelt patriots whose careers were destroyed, some of them died, um, and they were labeled by Council on Foreign-Related Historians, uh, Foreign Relation Historians, which is the, the, the American branch of Chatham House, the British Roundtable in America, which controls the narrative of what happened in many ways to uh, the post-war world. Um, he was labeled, again, a, a commie traitor, and, and he, you know, but he tried to run for the presidency in 1948, but he warns in 1946 that fascism in the post-war inevitably will push steadily for Anglo-Saxon imperialism and eventually for war with Russia. Already American fascists are talking and writing about this conflict and using it as an excuse for their internal hatreds and intolerances towards certain races, creeds, and classes. Now, what we do know is that not only was the OSS disbanded, the patriots who were part of American intelligence who understood the nature of the Wall Street London operation behind the growth of fascism were ousted. They were not given security clearances. They were kicked out of universities. They were not, and the only people who were allowed to, to stay within the power sectors of the State Department and the, and the new CIA that was formed in, in 1947 were the most vicious deep state traders who went on to work with the British in creating an Anglo-American special relationship under the Iron Curtain which never should have happened because people like Henry Wallace, Franklin Roosevelt had worked very hard to, to create a new order based not upon one world government, but based upon cooperation 
with Russia, China, and the U.S. as the trifecta key alliance that would then work together to emit credit, to emit uh, the advancement of technologies to Africa and internationalize the New Deal experience of the United States into the African, Indian, Chinese, South American contexts to end hunger, end war, and really create a situation of abundance for all, right? And that was what was subverted. And that idea became completely killed under the Iron Curtain insanity that drove people insane, where the, the FBI encouraged the growth of a new form of American dictatorship of surveillance state with, with a you know, 33rd degree Freemason J. Edgar Hoover overseeing this apparatus over the course of, of eight presidencies. Um, and I mean, overseeing the murder of people like John F. Kennedy and covering it up, overseeing the growth of, uh, I mean, an entire security complex internationally with the CIA working together internationally while the FBI applied this dictatorship domestically, creating domestic terrorism. Um, I mean, this has been proven as well that the FBI had their hands and their agents working as provocateurs throughout the 1960s within the weather underground, within other uh, domestic terror outfits, even to this very day. There's not a single case of domestic terror operations that have not been discovered to have a direct hand either with, with provocateurs, informants, or directly controlled by the FBI. Not a single one, from Gov Governor Whitmore to 9-11 to everything in between. The, the, the studies have been done, the research is out, it's a fact. So we're now a situation where we're being, we're being played. The power of the nation state is still something which scares the oligarchy, that the nation state has the ability to erase the, the unpayable debts before the financial system is detonated. And we could make sure that the, the financiers who are trying to uh, grow a new form of fascism over the, the, the context of the, the banking collapse, receive the, the pain of the, the blowout of the, of the banking system themselves. And it's not the people. But it requires that, you know, you have a viable political movement. And that's why, again, the fact that Donald Trump is still in the fight and there's such a, um, a desperate move by the FBI and those controlling the FBI as their, their political tools to run Mar-a-Lago raids to try to defame and undermine the, the thing that Trump has awoken as far as a patriotic impulse with an organized capacity within the United States is very serious. I think that's one of the only viable forms or one of the best vi viable forms of battle that we have available to us right now. Um, so that's that's all I wanted to say. And if people want to know more about this, my documentary, like I said, is available up on uh, on this website, CanadianPatriot.org. And there's going to be more documentaries coming out very soon. Well, that's very interesting. I had no idea that there was such a strong fascist uh, movement in, in in the U.S. and other countries at that uh, point in time. And it seems that it's um, just what we can see uh, today. It's just a few people pulling the, the strings. I mean, both in the sort of destructive direction, but also in it's just a, a few people who speak out, who are then able, like um, the General Butler, um, to, to stop uh, things going into a certain direction. Direction. So that's very interesting. I mean, it's it's. Um, I mean, we always have to keep that in mind, that you are like one 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 honest person can make like a, a total change in like um, historic, you know, in a in a basically a train running, and you think it you can't stop it, and then boom, all of a sudden it it all changes. That's that's very interesting. Yeah, um, I have I have a question. Um... In you are are you in Russia now? In Russia now? No, I'm I'm in Canada. 
in Canada you are sorry um, but um, how do you how do you estimate the role of Russia now in all this is there do they do they have they have do they play theater with this war or do they what do you think is there a real conflict or how do you explain this oh yeah no i i think that there is a real conflict but there's also from my assessment uh, deep state operations that were created especially in the 1990s in russia with foreign agencies that created the growth of a new generation of oligarchs that you know gobbled up all of the former state enterprises um, and you had the infusion of people like, for example, uh, Yader Gaidar, uh, 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 Chubai, and you know, uh, Chubai was a major figure in bringing in Davos into Russia. Um, created uh, Russian Davos conferences in 2008, 2009, and uh, the growth of sort of a, a biosecurity complex, especially within the banking system, which still is not nationalized. The the the, the financial mm -hmm. sector of Russia um, is still very much oh, under the influence of the IMF which created the disaster mm. of perestroika to begin with. They, their original idea was to completely just destroy Russia. Even Dick Cheney's assistant, I forgot his name, he wrote a book saying Dick Cheney wanted not only to get rid of the Soviet Union, he wanted to get rid of Russia as a civilization <laughs> in the 1990s. And he's like, that was a little mm. bit much. Um, but, you know, Victoria Newland was Dick Cheney's direct assistant. She was also the, the direct assistant for uh, Strobe Talbot, who oversaw the growth of a lot of these oligarchs. He himself was a Rhodes Scholar working with Bill Clinton's former roommate. Um, so this is something which I've, I've identified since Putin was brought in as a troubleshooter under the patronage of uh, Primakov, who was a nationalist. He was a patriot. He was a good person. Uh, Glaziev is also a part of a nationalist sector or nationalist grouping that does not want to sacrifice their civilization on this altar of Gaia. But I, you have to be able to map out this fight. There, for the past 20 years, there's been a, a battle within the, the corridors of power. I think Russia has... Uh, the better part of Russia has gained better control over their, their intelligence and military um, mechanisms so they can execute things like the, the Syria operation to avoid the destruction of Syria. Like there was no, there was supposed to be a Libya operation in Syria in 2015. Mm -hmm. That didn't happen. They've been able to use their, that for a lot of good, but they're, they're, uh, those who are controlling the levers of the pharmaceutical industries, people like Hermann Greff, who's very integrated into the World Economic Forum. Um, I think he's even a trustee who brought in many of the uh, the worst biotechnologies for uh, vaccinations into Russia. Um, he's a, a major, major player who seems to have protection. I don't fully understand. Um, same thing for many of these forces in the Bank of Russia, which again, gets a lot of its directives um, yeah. from the IMF, even now. Um, it's not fully un obeying commands of what I think uh, Putin and uh, his grouping would prefer. But again, there, there are things I don't fully understand. There's, there's forces that are protected. Um, China has done, they have their own deep state operation and their own fight within China too. In some ways, China has been, they've done a better job at, at uprooting some of these World Economic Forum figures like yeah. uh, Jack Ma um, and have taken more control of their, over their banking system which allows China to build the sorts of miraculous things that we couldn't do in a, you know, it, it takes us here in Canada something like eight years to build an extra bus stop for like, you know, $2 billion in China, they could build a high speed rail line for 3000 miles know. for a fraction of the price. And it's just because they, they still kept control of their, their national banking system, but they also have their own deep state fights that they're dealing with too. So every nation has it. I think it's very interesting to know that such details because uh, the propaganda is polarizing 
and mm -hmm. polarizing against one state against the other state. And so there's not the conflict within the state is not is not dealt with. And we are it's it's just uh, it's just um, taken off our minds. It's just hidden. So there is a bad state. There is a good state. And it's this, this propaganda mechanism is very strong. And there are people that are people who send money to Ukraine to buy weapons there. And, and so they all think this is one, one is bad, one is, and, and the other is good. And you know that there are problems with those who want to be good and those that, that those who are bad, that they cannot do everything because there are some people hindering them, that there are conflicts within the States in US or in Russia. And in Ukraine, for instance, too, on Europe, too. Yes. So there's such a struggle within those big blocks. It's not yes. a uni it's not a unified uh, political entity. It's just uh, many interests struggling. Yeah, so much more gratifying to look at history from that lens. That's why I called my my my, my new book trilogy, The Clash of the Two Americas, because I'm trying to both help Americans understand mm -hmm. what was it about their own society, which they should be proud of, while at the same time yes. appreciating the evil that was done. Because many Americans, they fall into one of two True. extremes. They're, they either, they, they go through the critical race theory, sort of leftist conditioning that we're all just a society of hypocrites and slave owners, and there's nothing good. It would be better if we just undid the constitution and started from, so you got that extreme. And then you got the other very... extreme where we're number yeah. one, we're, we're <laughs> exceptional. Like, and, and it's like, whoa, like have some humility there. Like there's a lot of bad done too, yeah. you know, like you're, you're, you're both kind of right and wrong at the same time. And every country, you could say there's a clash of two Germanys, a clash of, clash of two Britons, a clash of two Russias. And that's our history. It's, yeah. it's very, it's very good that you open up some windows uh, that we can see in, into those national houses, which are not where the, where the fight is going on in all of them. And I think it's very important. Your work is very important. The world is not very simple. There are so many interests mixing international interests and, and, and within the, within the nations. And this one, this one movement, which is already there for head, now we have in, we have World War Three, but they were already there before World War One, and so you had there is a continuous force. You showed us and and the role of this force. They are looking for for people they can use in all nations. They are just trying out alliances and and, and so it's it's very complicated. And I think it's good to have historians like you to to analyze such things. To, to yes to stop us simplifying to stop us being victim of such a simplifying propaganda this is very important thank you thank you for those those very kind words yeah thanks so much this was uh, very inspiring as always and um yeah it's great that you had time to come and um, tell us uh, about uh, all your new findings um i think we'll put the link somewhere so people can then take a look um, for themselves and read more in depth like what you presented today. Thanks so much. Thank you. And if people want to uh, pick up the books, if they want to dig in more, if the 20-minute documentary is not satisfying you, um, my books are all available on CanadianPatriot.org, The Untold History of Canada, The Clash of the Two Americas. Uh, you know, and if you don't have money because times are tough, I understand, you can send me an email, people listening uh, to info at risingtidefoundation.net. And I'll happily send you free PDFs uh, of the books or the free audio book as well. Well, that's a great offer. Thank you. I think people should All really right. read more. You need to spend more time on the details because they are so, I don't know, they're just like 
I think, mind-changing if you look at the details. Thanks so really much. Yes. Thanks. Okay. Bye, folks. Um, Thanks. Goodbye, then. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was really... Ähm, erstaunlich. Also das ist doch immer wieder, wenn man guckt, gibt es noch, ist immer noch wieder etwas hinter dem nächsten Vorhang. Also es ist nicht zu fassen. Ja, sehr gut. Also Wolfgang, wobei ich weiß nicht ganz genau, sind wir wirklich schon in, im dritten Weltkrieg oder ist es irgendwie so eine undefinierte Situation? Ja, man weiß ich, es noch nicht benutze, ganz genau. Ich benutze das Bild, weil, äh, weil immer wieder gesagt, ich glaube, dass der Ernst Wolf das auch gesagt hat, dass so eine Krise wie ein Weltkrieg immer benutzt wurde, um desaströse Finanzverhältnisse... Uh, ...cover up uh, disastrous financial situations and restart. And uh, what we're going through at the moment seems to be having that same function. It's a war against the virus, as they call it, but it is <clears throat> a paralyzation of the, of the people because to, to enable them to do things they couldn't do otherwise. Oh, you're so right, uh, because, uh, you know, on the sidelines of this movement, other things are coming along and this, uh, you know, the, 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 the striving for profit, for digitalization and so on. Uh, we can exert an influence, as we've just seen. Single voices may take on an importance and now, this, of course, was a general that who was in charge of 500,000 people. That's, of course, somebody who has more staying power than us. But then again, there's many of us. Okay, we have further guests now. One is already waiting. We have with us CJ Hopkins. Um, can you hear us? Hi. Hello. Hi. Great to see you. <laughs> uh, so we are still, um, you have been working with um, Catherine Austin Fitz on certain um, uh, discoveries or like thought you've been exchanging thoughts for a while, as I uh, learned or I assume. And um, maybe could you just like uh, introduce yourself so our audience can know like who you are. Yeah, I'm uh, CJ Hopkins. I'm uh, a playwright, uh, an author, and a political satirist. Um, I uh, run a blog called Consent Factory and uh, 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 a micro publishing operation called Consent Factory Publishing. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, uh, you've also been here. Like I see, you ho um, you have you hold multiple writing awards. Um, Besides others, is in 2002, first of the Scotman Fringe Firsts, um, and 2004, yeah. best play of the um, Arcade Fringe. So that's um, so you, you've been like now basically been propelled into um, like a more intense um, activity uh, since the crisis started, or have is, has you have you been always looking at what's been going on, like um, with regard to the global constellation? I because you've been working also with um, uh, Catherine Fitz on uh, um, Austin Fitz on this topic of like the Mister Mister Global, so sort of who's behind it, who's who's pulling the strings basically, or. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll I'll tell you my story a little bit while we're waiting for Catherine uh, to plug in. Uh, yeah, the uh, the the awards you mentioned were for a play that I finished writing in 1992, 
And, uh, and then in 2002, it was done um, at the uh, Edinburgh Festival Fringe, um, uh, the UK production. And that's when it won all of the uh, awards and, uh, uh, and got all of the attention. Uh, that's, uh, I was mostly just a playwright at the time. And uh, that play was my first finished play. And uh, uh, even back then, I mean, that play was written shortly after the fall of the Soviet Union. And what I was really wrestling with uh, in that play, uh, I mean, um, among a lot of other things, but what I was really wrestling with is uh, the new world that we had entered. Um, I thought it was uh, probably the most historic uh, development of my lifetime. It was the end of that, uh, the way I saw it was, it was the end of that last uh, major ideological conflict. Um, and basically at that point, we became a, a single ideology world. We became a global capitalist world. And uh, even in that play all those years ago, 30 years ago, I, I, that's when I started wrestling with it. Um, I, uh, I was a playwright for a long time. Um, I kind of stopped writing plays. I, I sort of finished uh, with what I wanted to do in the theater. Um, a few years ago, uh, I wrote a novel, uh, uh, kind of digging into the same territory. Um, and then uh, in 2016, I started uh, writing the uh, political satire, the essays that uh, a lot of people know me for uh, now. I started that, um, uh, you know, shortly after Brexit happened and the Trump phenomenon began in the United States. Um, and what, you know, what got my interest there was uh, what people were calling, you know, a, a populist uprising. Um, and I, I saw it as, as this backlash against the spread of uh, global capitalism and the hegemony of global capitalist ideology uh, from within the West. Uh, basically, uh, uh, you know, what, I, what, I, what I've kind of tracked, I think, you know, throughout most of my creative life is, is um, you know, the Soviet Union fell and shortly there, there was that strange period of a few years when um, nobody really knew what the master narrative was anymore. The Cold War was over and we didn't really have a new master narrative and it was sort of confusing. And then 9-11 uh, happened and we uh, uh, entered the war on terror. And uh, basically the war on terror was our, our master narrative um, uh, from 2001 right up until the summer of uh, 2016. And uh, I, I tracked it. Actually, I, I, I cited it in one of my essays. Um, a lot of people don't remember in the summer of 2016, uh, we were still very much in the war on terror. Uh, everyone was very excited about the, uh, the lone wolf terrorists. Right. And uh, there were attacks in Nice. And there was one here in Germany. Um, and, and this was, you know, this was the master narrative that we were living under very much still in the, the war on terror. And then uh, it changed in the course of a month. They, they basically, they turned the war on terror off and they turned on what I call the war on populism. Um, and the whole master narrative switched. Uh, suddenly we weren't under threat from Islamic terrorists anymore. Now we were under threat from, you know, extreme right 
populists who were going to rise up and destroy democracy. Um, and that narrative uh, uh, continued all the way through the, the Trump uh, years. And it's sort of segued in, it's sort of blended right into the beginning of the rollout of the new normal in 2020. Um, so that's a really long answer to your question. Um, what, what I'm trying to say is I've been, I think I've been tracking the same thing throughout all my work, whether I was writing, you know, plays for the stage or in my novel, and when I started writing uh, political satire, I, I think I'm, I think I'm tracking the same evolution. And, and what, what, what I'm really focused on and interested in is the development of this new world that we're in, which I think a lot of us don't really uh, have a handle on yet. We can't, I, I, I think even those of us who are aware of it, uh, we can't really get our minds around the fact because it, it, it is really, it's the first time in human history that the entire world, the globe, is unified under a single ideology that you know one one ideological system basically rules the entire world and uh i think that's a that's a development that we don't really understand yet it's it's the one that's been fascinating me for 30 years and now you've written a book the the new normal reich is that correct the rise of the new normal Reich. yes mm -hmm. that's my it's my third collection of these uh, uh essays it's political satire and commentary sometimes i get more serious i try to be funny because i'm basically a satirist but um i do get serious and theoretical uh from time to time yeah the the rise of the new normal Reich is uh my essays from 2020 and 2021. I mean, shall we? Um, I don't know if if uh, if Catherine is is on her way, or shall we already start? Maybe she's she's there. Oh, she's there. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. She's um, here. Yeah. She's there. Can you see me? Hello. Not yet. I can't see you. Can you see me? Can you see me? No, we can hear you. Ah, okay. Let's see. <laughs> you just would not believe what's been going on around here. Ah. Lower left, Catherine. Okay, wait a minute. Now you uh, can see me. Yeah. Hello there. Great. <laughs> oh, Hello. I, my deepest apologies. It is so wonderful to see you. We've been living in internet wonderland here. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, how are you? Yeah, we're all good. It's good. It's good to see you. Um, it's good to see you. Great. Maybe um, we've already started to talk a little bit with um, C.J. Hopkins about um, sort of he's given a little bit of an introduction of uh, the introduction uh -huh. of what he's been, um, you know, focusing on. And um, maybe could you just introduce yourself um, to, to the audience? I mean, a lot of people know you already, but yes. just to give a little bit of uh, some. So my name is Catherine Austin Fitz. I'm the publisher of Solari, uh, the Solari Report. I'm an investment advisor and investment banker. Um, and my great interest is understanding money and understanding money in a way that helps us each individually and then collectively live a free and inspired life. I'm very interested in freedom. And one of the things I was trying to do during the Trump uh, 
uh, the first Trump election in 2016 was maintain my state of amusement. And I did that by discovering C.J. Hopkins. <laughs> so I don't know if you've read his essay books on American politics, but you could laugh so hard. One point I realized, ooh, I better shut the blinds because my neighbors, they see how hard I'm laughing and stopping my feet, they'll, <laughs> they'll question. Anyway, so uh, one thing led to another. And of course, when I moved to the Netherlands, I realized C.J.'s in Berlin and we started to communicate and I said, come on up to Stavorn and come sailing. And I tried for a long time, CJ, to talk you into coming. Um, and then you did. And so we had, uh, so he had this idea that we would have a conversation about, you know, who's really running the planet and why are they behaving this way? And so uh, that's what we did. And I, I uh, you know, I invite you all back. We should all go back out on the sailboat and and start talking about okay, how do we really shake things up? <laughs> That's true. We have a we have a video of this uh, conversation of yours that Oval Media uh -huh. um, produced. It's going to be like um, it's going to air after the the session today. So oh, wonderful. So and people can see that then it's like I think 40 minutes or about an hour. Um, yeah. So uh, it would be great if maybe you can um, give us a bit more hints who's running the show. So, you know, I've spent my whole life trying to figure that out. And I have to confess, you know, a lot of times I'll say, I don't know who's running the show. And that's why I have a nickname uh, for the committee that runs the world named Mr. Global. And uh, it was inspired by a cartoon uh, or a sort of comic strip that used to happen by a firm I worked with in London. Uh, and they had a little picture of a man uh, whose body was shaped in the, his body was a, a planet, you know, the sort of planet Earth. And he had these little sick arm and legs and he, 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 um, he, he flew around the world in this big plan, smoking a cigar and ordering people around, <laughs> you know. So he was sort of a nickname character for the committee that ran the world. Anyway, so the, on the Solaria report, every quarter we have a list of the most important unanswered questions. And For me, the most important unanswered question is, you know, sort of who is Mr. Global and why is Mr. Global behaving the way he's behaving? Because if you're gonna if you're gonna war with somebody or get along with somebody, it's important to look at the world from their point of view. And I had the opportunity to work in um, a, a federal administration as well as work at the top of Wall Street, and I got a sense of what. If you're if you're running a large government portfolio, or you're running a lot of private money, what the world looks like. But it was clear that things were run very centrally from upstairs, a.k.a. Mr. Global. And I will tell you, Vivian, I'm sure you have experienced this, you and your colleagues at the Corona Committee. But occasionally I'll see somebody post a comment uh, to one of my interviews and say, well, you know, she's lying because she says she doesn't know who Mr. Global is, but she knows she does. <laughs> and and I realized then nobody understands how bad it is that we're running a whole planet with the vast majority of the people, even at very high levels in the financial and government uh, world, not quite being clear on how the governance system is. And I think, you know, step one to real solutions is saying we need sovereignty, we want sovereignty. Um, and uh, and it is ridiculous that we should live on a planet and the and the governance system be secret. Um, I have been doing a lot of research into sovereign immunities and what's up at the Bank of International Settlement, and I'd love to 
to talk about some of my theories about what's going on at the very top of the financial system. Mm -hmm. um, but the reality is, you know, the governance planet on this uh, or the governance system on this planet is a secret. The financial system is a subsection of that governance system. And it's absolutely ridiculous that, that we can't know, you know, who it is and how it works. And I think uh, it is essential we bring transparency to it, which is why I really appreciate CJ and and Oval Media's efforts and, and of course, the efforts of the Corona Investigation Committee, because that's what you've been you know, I feel like you've been on Mr. Global's tail for quite some time now. Yeah, I hope we are like starting to breathe down his neck. Yeah, but uh... <laughs> I think I think you are. <laughs> I think you are. We we, had, we just heard uh, something about uh, discussions in in the single big uh, states like in US or like in Russia and we got the impression that the, there is not one state but that there are different interests in all those states. There is not one government but there are conflicts in all those states in US and there are conflicts in Russia and there are conflicts in other regions of the world. So it's just simplifying having US there, Russia there or China there and it's very interesting to look into the conflicts in the national on the national level and there are international uh, international companies who are in conflict with each other, competing each other, the data guys and the pharma guys, and right. so there are so many different don't so many different interests. I'm, I I would like to understand all these. Perhaps you can tell us something about you. You're interested in the financial in the financial level, but they all have to exchange with some financial means. So so they all have to deal with finance. Perhaps you have an in. We have more insight yeah, so, in those conflicts. So I think of I think of money as a wonderful mapping tool. It's simply a way of mapping out what what's really going on. You know, if you in in America, if you turn on the TV set on Sunday and they say, "Oh, you know, here's what's happening in Washington," well, it's all complete nonsense because if you're looking at how they're whacking up the money in the budgets, something completely different is going on. So I learned very uh, as a young child to really map out the money and see how the money worked, because it, it was a way simply of mapping out what the real politics and power, you know, how the power lines really work. Because one of the things I'll tell you, the little secret sauce, and, and CJ and I discussed this in the, in the documentary, is if we were free to run the economy in a way that optimized freedom and, and you know, sensible economics, you know, there's a great you know, the, the amount of wealth that could be created on this planet is far greater than what is now because tyranny and central control are unbelievably expensive. Mm -hmm. You know, so I would argue that the biggest industry on the entire planet is controlling and ma manipulating people, including creating the kind of divide and conquer that you just referenced. <laughs> and it is, it's in every industry, it's in every state, um, you know, uh, it's in many, many companies. Divide and conquer is a is a control tactic, and it's a tactic that, you know, needs tremendous investment and uh, huge operations if you're going to run a planet on a centralized basis under tight secrecy. And um, although I will say this, you know, one of the advantages we've had since the corona pandemic started is you know, Mr. Global is starting to show a little, you know, or at least his immediate minions are coming more out of the closet. And and now, 
you know, one of the great things about the last two years for someone like me is now all sorts of really smart, intelligent, capable people are showing up and helping. So, um, you know, I look at the Corona Investigation Committee and what I see in here is the cavalry. So, <laughs> so um, I, you know, let me bring up sovereign immunities because that's one of the things I've been on the trail of. Everybody here, I think, knows what the Bank of International Settlements is. Well, I mean, maybe for the audience, uh, could you just give a few words for that? Okay, so so let's look at what the model of governance has been on planet Earth. If you come to most countries in the Western world, you have a legislative process, you have a democratic process that collects taxes and allocates the fiscal resources. But then you have a monetary authority which allocates the and manages the monetary policies in the currency, which is more often than not controlled and owned by private bankers. So you have this balance of power between the electorate and the central banks. Mm -hmm. Now, the central banks for since 1930 um, have shared a central bank of central banks called the Bank of International Settlements in Geneva, Switzerland. And um, that bank has uh, has been a uh, first and foremost, it's presented at a policy shop where central bankers meet generally once a month and coordinate, make sure their policies make sense and they're coordinating with each other. But it also has the ability to facilitate deposits and transactions and money management and and essentially investment mechanisms, uh, including gold globally. And, and to do uh, to do all of that behind complete sovereign immunity and complete secrecy. So essentially working through the Bank of International Settlements, the BIS can facilitate deposits, transactions, securities, data, um, gold and precious metals. Uh, you know, think of it as potentially the premier money laundering operation in the world. And um, but the Bank of International Settlements is operated behind sovereign immunity. And increasingly, we've seen steps to extend that sovereign immunity first to what's called the systemically important um, institutions, both banks, insurance companies and payment uh, payment systems, but also now innovation hubs around the world, which are designed to facilitate central bank uh, digital currency. I believe you have all seen the video that we've shown of the general manager of the Bank of International Settlements, Augustine Karstens, um, uh, uh, explaining in 56 seconds in, in 2020 that central bank digital currencies will give uh, the central banks central control of how money is used and you know where it can go and what it can do. So they have complete uh, they have the complete ability to see who's doing what, but they also have the ability to enforce, to set and enforce rules centrally. It's very chilling. If you go to Solaria.com and click on um, on cash every day, you'll see it. And uh, you might want to put it in the in the video for the audience because it's quite extraordinary. Beneath that video is a video of um, Richard Werner, who's the top academic scholar on central banking who explains that the um, he was told by a top European central banker that, of course, the goal is to chip us, put chips in our hand 
um, to allow us to transact. So it's literally the mark of the beast system. And um, I just received, to my shock and dismay, a video from an Australian subscriber. Um, some of the some of the customers of Suncor have now received a video or a letter from Suncor encouraging them to think in terms of putting a chip in their hands so they can have greater convenience when they transact. Whoa. That's quite extraordinary. Yeah. So we'll put that up um, by Monday or Tuesday. We'll have that Suncor video or the video about the Suncor communication up beneath the, the two that I just described. Again, go to Solari and click on cash every day and you can watch those. And so the, the we're Suncor, talking about... Excuse me, the Suncor, what's that again? It's an Australian financial institution. Okay. So, so uh, what I believe is that we have a set of of agencies under the United Nations, the WHO, the World Bank, the IMF, and then we have a Bank of International Settlements working with the central banks in a way that creates sovereign immunity. And between sovereign immunity on development economics, and that includes the ability to put countries in a debt trap, mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and sovereign immunities on all the shenanigans around the pandemic or uh, negotiations, you know, that give indemnities of pharmaceutical companies, et cetera, and the sovereign immunities of the central bankers. What we're talking about is the growth of a global parallel civilization, which is not subject to the laws of the sovereign governments around the world and is acting with impunity to basically shake down the current owners of assets and move assets under their ownership and control. I said before um, that we have we have a fiscal uh, capacity in most Western countries under the jurisdiction of the electorate, and then we have uh, banks under the jurisdiction of a monetary authority. The way you know the the current global reset, uh, which I describe as a financial coup d'état, the central banks are asserting control over the electorate, and they've done that by putting the um, 190 plus countries in a debt trap. Mm -hmm. And um, and there's no reason why sovereign governments can't work their way out of that debt trap, but they can't do it in the current system. And, um, and so what I see is I see a group of global institutions with sovereign immunity basically destroying the sovereign governments. And that's our job as citizens, can we take our sovereign governments back, reassert sovereignty, both individually and nationally, and turn to these global institutions and say, you know something, we're, we're taking back, we're canceling your sovereign immunity. You are no longer free to be above the law. I mean, that's also something we could see with with Gavi in Switzerland. They also have immunity, right. like just what you right. what you said. So basically, yeah. they can also, you know, nothing that they transport like within Switzerland or whatever they do can be right. uh, like even checked upon. So it could be like gold or diamonds or whatever that they just uh, right. basically smuggle or like, I mean, move from here to there and you don't know what's going on. So they cannot be sued also. I think the only exception was that they can be sued if they're involved in some car crash i mean that's yeah uh, traffic you know, accidents <laughs> imagine that and nothing else so one one thing i could should manage it's up at, at the homepage at solari i wrote an article about the bis called does the bis owe us six uh, 21 trillion dollars 
because uh, after many decades of declining to do so, the Fed became a shareholder of the BIS in, in late 1994. And that was not long before the 21 trains started disappearing from the federal government. And my challenge for many years, Vivian, has been to try and figure out how you could possibly launder that much money. You know, actually, the pipes of the BIS is what could handle that that scale of money laundering and and cycling it back into various groups, you know, including groups like the the Gates Foundation or the Clinton Foundation. So, um, uh, you know, I think we've been watching a group of institutions acting outside the law. And it's my contention, and I'm not an attorney, so this is going to take a lot of work and research, but it is my contention that the extension by the BIS of sovereign immunity to the systemically important institutions, banks, insurance companies, payment systems, and the innovation hubs is outside the law, and they can be um, they can be prosecuted, and that sovereign immunity can be withdrawn. What do you What do you know about cooperation between uh, Russian oligarchs or Chinese uh, oligarchs? and uh, other oligarchs in the world uh, is there is there a network over the over the national uh, over the national uh, structure or do you think this is uh, structures on the on the level european us russia and so on is it separated or do they work together so they so i would say it, increasingly for the last 20 years they work together but there is competition and um Of course, one of the things they like to do is use the governments to protect them against risk and provide, you know, so so the government is a huge financial pot of both appropriations and debt and credit capacity. So as we saw in the financial crisis or we saw in the pandemic, you know, the 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 billionaires made a fortune on the pandemic. So. You know, you do something, it's called disaster capitalism. You do something that causes the value of real estate businesses and assets to go down on a temporary basis, and you can pick them up cheap or just pick up their market share cheap. The same thing is going to happen this winter, I think, on um, energy. I don't know if you saw the uh, head of the EU say the other day that their goal was to flatten the curve on energy prices. And the use of the term flatten the curve was very distinctly organized and clear. But she said flatten the curve. Now, when you flatten the curve on energy prices like that, you're going to put a whole lot of businesses in a world of hurt or out of business. Same with real estate. And you're going to be able to have, you know, that's going to be an enormous shopping spree on both market share and companies and assets. So the, you know, so the smart money is going to pick up a lot of invaluable assets for cheap. Terrible. Yes. So it seems to be like, what so, exactly does he mean with like flattening the curve? Like, how would that work? She, she was at the time she was talking about implementing policies, a cap on oil and gas prices mm -hmm. or, or some kind of cap. I haven't looked at the proposal, but She was talking about implementing a cap that would would uh, uh, keep the prices low during peak to, peak demand by lowering the demand during peak times, is is my understanding of what it meant. But the use of flatten the curve was clearly highly scripted, and after the pandemic, I 
-hmm. You know, I have to say, I, I would, I think CJ would probably say it was in very poor taste. <laughs> uh, I, I would say it, it was perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> it's, uh, you know, it's part of the, it's part of the vocabulary of the new normal. Uh, right. You know, uh, this lingo, I mean, um, at this point, the majority of the masses have been conditioned. Um, uh, you know, I, I before you joined us, Catherine, I was I was just talking about the series of master narratives or or realities uh, that I've been tracking for the last thirty years. You know, from the fall of the Soviet Union through the war on terror, through the war, what I call the war on populism which just segued right into the new normal. And, you know, each one of these, these master narratives, it, it, they become a reality, um, you know, not, not for those of us who are critics or who are opposing it, but for the majority of the masses, they become reality. You know, you can put scare quotes around it if you want. Um, uh, but it is, I mean, you know, even, even now we see it uh, with the new normal, a lot of the, uh, you know, the so-called COVID measures are being revoked and being canceled and, and so on. Um, and they can be because the narrative has done its work. Um, it's, it, 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 it has become our reality where it, it, she can come out now and just say, we need to flatten the curve. And heads are just going to nod. Of course, we need to flatten the curve. That's what we do. You know, the curve is bad. You know, it, it has <laughs> it, it has just become part of the fabric of 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 our reality. Yeah. Um, maybe it's a good point uh, for me to uh, jump in and, and and just give a different perspective because I'm nowhere near as knowledgeable um, as Catherine is about all the financial stuff or even uh, the the geopolitical stuff. I think. I heard uh, Wolfgang talking uh, 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 just before we came on about the complexities of uh, of the world and all of the different uh, overlapping conflicts and you know the fact that uh, uh, before you joined us, Catherine, I was giving my usual uh, spiel about how we live in a single ideology world and have for the last thirty years, and and I've been tracking the development of it. Um, people, a lot of people hear that and and hear that in a simplified version and think, okay, so there are no, there's no more competition between nation states and everything is, you know, being centrally controlled. And of course, that's not the case. It's a very complex, multiplicitous world where, of course, there's competition between nation states, just like there's competition between corporations. Um, what I'm talking about is on the this this hegemony is on the systemic level yeah um and what i think what what i've been trying to draw attention to is the evolution of this new world that we're in and if you look at it through my lens for a moment and just follow my storyline um it's 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 not on the down on the detailed level but it's more up on the meta level if you if you if you see the end of the cold war as i do as as sort of the, the end of the last real big ideological conflict, right? At that point, global capitalism, you know, Catherine talks about Mr. Global, I talk about Globocap, right? That's, <laughs> that's, my, that's my funny name for the system that I can't articulate. So we become a Globocap world, you know, one ideological system. Sure, it's complex, sure, it's multiplicitous, but we're all basically living in a global capitalist reality, right? So 
okay, imagine you're Globocat. The Cold War is over, your ideology now, you run, the, you run the world, basically. Your ideology rules the entire world. What's left to do? There aren't any more outside adversaries, right? The Soviet communism's over. Yeah, it's, that's it. You, you occupy the entire territory of the earth. So what's left to do? You know, what's left to do is clear and hold. This is a military expression. You occupy the territory. You move throughout the territory looking for pockets of resistance. All right, Where's, uh, where is some resistance to my new ideology that I'm installing? You identify them and you wipe them out. You, know, you, you destabilize them you, or you wipe them out one way or the other. If you look back at the last 30 years, you know, what was the war on terror? Yeah, yeah. Well, that was resistance, you know, against this unified global capitalist world. It was, it was resistance coming from uh, uh, Islamic fundamentalists, basically, who said, hey, you know what? We don't want to give up our, our, our values. We don't want to give up our religious values and, and play ball with global cap, right? Contrast this with Saudi Arabia, which is completely integrated into the machine. And uh, even though they're technically a theocracy, they, they play ball with global cap. Um, a few other countries said, no, we don't want to do this. Right? And, and so we had the war on terror. You know, let's go in and destabilize, destabilize the Middle East and restructure that whole place. Right? That continued all the way up to 2016. Why did it end? Well, the reason that it ended is suddenly we had this populist uprising happening all over the West, you know, not you know, in the Middle East, but it was happening in the West. Um, Catherine was talking about uh, sovereignty. And I described this way back when, you know, I, I come from the left and I alienated a lot of my uh, audience because I started saying, you know, okay, this is, a, a, this is a reactionary uprising, right? That's coming from the right. But I don't mean reactionary in a pejorative sense. These are countries, these are nations that still conceive of themselves as sovereign nations. And they are trying to hold on to their sovereignty, preserve their sovereignty and defend it from the destabilization and restructuring that global capitalism is carrying out, right? Um, that started and, and, and that backlash spread and it led to Brexit and it led to Trump. And we have the whole war on populism period, right? Where, where basically anyone who was, uh, you know, criticizing, resisting, uh, you know, global cap, the, the hegemony of global capitalist ideology was branded as a, you know, far right fascist extremist who wants to destroy democracy and, you know, take over the world or something. All right. It seamlessly bled into the new normal in 2020. And suddenly it was about shut up, and we're going to lock you inside your house. And if you go outside without permission, the police are going to come and beat you and arrest you. And if we tell you to wear a useless mask on your face, which everyone agreed up until about a week ago <laughs> was completely useless against airborne viruses. But now if we order you to wear it and you don't, the police will haul you off of a bus. Right? And when we order you to take our experimental vaccines, you will take them or we will punish you, we'll destroy your career, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll financially crush your family. What's happening? Well, what I see 
is the natural evolution of this globally hegemonic power system, which has no outside adversaries anymore. It's the only thing left to do is to evolve into a more and more totalitarian form because any resistance against the system is now an insurgency. It's all internal resistance. And that's what I'm watching. I'm watching, I'm watching the system that we all live under evolving into a more and more totalitarian form. It's happening in all these detailed ways. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, Catherine's enlightening a lot of people about how it's happening financially. I think it's incredibly important. Other people are working on the details of, uh, I saw a little bit of uh, uh, Matt Barrett talking about, um, I forget what it was, it was a, yeah. but a lot of people are working on the details. What I'm trying to do is, is maybe focus a light on the larger, broader evolutionary arc uh, to give us some context uh, for what's happening. So that's so also let me, where, sorry, where we have, you, uh, do you know, the uh, what Patrick Wood points out is like um, the technocratic um, approach, basically um, technocracy, this this kind of stuff that you have um, you put a price tag on everything, on the energy, and that's another another way to to keep the people basically hostage to what's uh, to, you know to what the government wants that you have um, they control you by now what, that we see the upcoming uh, energy crisis, and you know now that you if you well behave you might have access to uh, to a little bit of gas and electricity or whatever. So that's also going in that direction. Maybe food shortages. Uh, so it's another way of, of controlling, another means of controlling people. Yeah, I, and I think and I think control is control is the key, because again, if you imagine if you imagine our system, imagine Mr. Global, imagine GloboCap as an occupying force, you know, just like an army occupying a territory, right? Except this time the territory is the entire world, right? What is there left to do? except yeah, establish greater and greater control in order to maintain your system and to try to wipe out any form of internal resistance to your system. And it doesn't matter what the nature of that resistance is, whether it's Islamic fundamentalism, whether it's Christian fundamentalism, whether it's uh, people, nations that are simply trying to preserve their sovereignty, uh, you know, it, it, the the nature of the resistance doesn't matter any resistance any resistance to the system is an internal threat and the system has nothing else to do other than solidify and and increase its control you know so? there is there is another dimension when you say the system you know the system needs uh, force they need military they need police and they need they have to rely on police and military how to, how make they how can they make sure that they can rely on citizens that wear a uniform? How can they how can they do it? Just paying them well is it enough? Do you think this will they will all do? They will shoot their own people. They will do it for all over the world. I think it's very difficult to let people shoot each other and to pay them for this. I think the role the role of military and the role of police is is a key role. If, if they want to do what they want. And uh, we have to think of that. We have to make those right. people who wear uniforms now aware of what a big, big power they have if they don't obey. 
if they don't do such criminal things. So I think we should discuss this too. If I can, uh, uh, Catherine, if you let me just jump in, I'd love to yeah. jump on that, and then I'll let you. Uh, I'll let you go, um, Volker, because I think you're. I, I, I think you're. You're uh, uh, opening up a, a a can of worms that we should open up and uh, look at, and it's something uh, that I've written about a little bit. Um, first of all, <laughs> first of all, if you look at at the just the unprecedented, uh, you know, propaganda and uh, uh, conditioning campaign that has been waged, uh, yes, over the last two and a half years in the context of you know, the pandemic, um, but also during the four years prior to that, uh, basically since uh, you know, the, the populist uprising began. If you look at that and you look at the effect of it and you, you, you look at, at the size of the majority of the masses, that it, that are nodding their heads and going along and just you know parroting the most absurd possible things and the size the small size of the minority of those of us who are you know trying to push back uh trying to i think that i think it is testament to the power of this propaganda of this communications machine which is just as important if not more important than the actual soldiers and the police uh, in terms of controlling people. Having said that, having said that, I, I also think it's, it's really important to follow the narrative that has been uh, disseminated again since around 2016. One of the first essays I wrote in, it is 2016, 2018, something I forget. It was called The War on Dissent uh, because I saw it very dramatically the way the the establishment's communications were switching and and specifically demonizing demonizing any form of dissent any form of criticism so that so that if you're if you're a, if you are now a critic or a, or a dissident uh, you're no longer a, a really a political dissident you're no longer someone with a political argument or a political critique you are an extremist you are you are basically you know no different than a terrorist you know you you are either insane or you're a conspiracy theorist or there has been a, just this ongoing intense intense campaign to demonize anyone pushing back against the official narrative and part of the reason for it is so that when the police start cracking heads when they start running over people with horses, as they did in Canada, right, in Ottawa, when the police get violent, they can depend on the majority of the masses to think, oh, good, good, the police are protecting us from the terrorists, from the extremists. So it all folds together. I'll let you get it, Catherine. Okay, so I have to tell you, I disagree with you. <laughs> It won't be the first. It's not the first time, right? <laughs> when you crazy. watch our documentary, you'll see lots of lots of heated discussion by CJ and me. Um, I want to step back and I want to talk about two things. One is the central banking model, and the other is the control grid. Because I think, you know, we want to have as much empathy for Mr. Global as possible. If you're Mr. Global and you're running the planet and it's 1989, you have a major problem. And the major problem is you're gonna to have to do a reset. 
there's no way you can globalize the economy. Now, let's let's go back for 500 years, four to 500 years, the Western world has been on a central banking warfare model where essentially the central banks print money and the military intelligence agencies make sure that people take it. And they've been able to swap paper that they print out of thin air for oil and gas and labor. And that's part of the debate we're seeing with the commodity producers around the world. They don't want to play that game anymore. But a decision was made to globalize the economy. And when they went forward with uh, um, the Uruguay round of GATT and, uh, and, and the creation of the WTO, you can't play that game anymore because you were subsidizing the Western world by raping the third world. Mm -hmm. But once you globalize, you're getting everybody into the same basket and not only getting everybody in the same basket, but you're putting all of Asia in a basket. They're phenomenally productive. And now you're going to put tremendous strain on resources, you know, as they want to move up and join the, the, you know, the European sort of level of, of comfort in life. So so you have to do a reset because the model you've been working won't work anymore. And the question is, how do you get the, you know, the populations in the Western world to go along with it? So that's problem number one. How am I going to do the reset? Problem number two is they've made very clear that they want to become a multi-planetary civilization. And if you become a multi-planetary civilization, you need a way of risk managing uh, whether it's money or operations on this one planet in a way that you can interact, you know, as a civilization that's living on more than one planet. And so there is a push for some kind of um, sovereign one planet governance that can be reliable for risk management. Now, that gets very difficult because for 50 years, we have promoted massive amounts of secrecy. The secrecy has gotten worse and worse. And at this point, your population is so far away from being able to exercise intelligent policy in the in the voting or, or in the civic world because they have no idea how the world works. None. The, their map is... You know, their map is like uh, a map from Disney World, you know, with Minnie and Mickey. Um, and and so you have this real challenge between the uh, the real map you need to do if you're Mr. Global for risk management versus the map that you've now sold people on by keeping more and more things secret. So you've got a real problem. And in there, CJ would call it propaganda. And this is where I disagree with 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 CJ, but I think his point is correct. And that is, I would call it military-grade neurological weaponry. The Western populations have been subject to massive amounts of mind control. It's not just propaganda. It's not just pressure. But we're talking about a control grid, which represents a significant investment. And I divide it into three lines. One is um, the financial nuts and bolts. So if you look at how people are managed on the ground in a place like the United States, you know, and this is all managed with AI and software and they're tracked individually. Every one of us is tracked individually and, and the financial nuts and bolts are phenomenally invasive and phenomenally powerful. So if you're a teacher, you better recommend that all the kids be put on Ritalin and drugs or else you can find yourself pushed out of the school system. If you're a parent, you want your kids on Ritalin because 
you'll get a social security disability check and that gives you the money you need to feed your kids now that they've shut down all the manufacturing and moved abroad. So, so one line is the financial nuts and bolts. A second line is covert operations. If you don't behave, you know, and I know this personally, you're subject to all sorts of physical harassment, poisoning, other problems. The covert operations are quite extensive. And, you know, I dare say that people who've tried to do something in the United States, there have been a huge number of assassinations um, and and serious, serious harm done to people and their families who are trying to do the right thing. So the second is covert operations. But the third is we have, particularly with the advent of cellular technology and smartphones, very serious mind control going on. And if you go to Solari and you put mind control in the search box, you'll pull up a commentary with what I've found to be the best links on how mind control works. And I think um, they're not depending just on military and police to round everybody up. I think they're seriously depending on mind control. And the pandemic has been very, very supportive of their enthusiasm about their investment in mind control. If you go pull up that commentary, again, go to Solari, put mind control in the search box, pull up a commentary. It's called Mind Control Tactics Used on Young People, Children and Young People and Everyone Else. At the very bottom of those links are two lectures, one by Charles Morgan and the other by Dr. James Giordano, one at the War College, another, both are to military. And they're basically on neurological weaponry. And I, I first got onto this because when I came became an investment advisor, I discovered that my clients were being targeted by people who market financial fraud using this kind of technology. And I ended up having to try and protect them from it. And, and it's extraordinary because if they use this successfully on the phone, on, um, you know, on the internet, you can literally have a very intelligent, educated person who wants to spend, you know, wants to invest in an investment that has a hundred percent chance of losing all their money, or they have, you know, they're buying something at 20% more than they would buy it if they were buying it at market. So they're making completely irrational decisions that make no sense, even though they're a highly educated and sensible person. And that's when I realized, okay, on the Solari report, I've really got to cover this because this technology is using to market consumer products that are, you know, are a complete waste of people's money to market financial fraud that's going to lose them a tremendous amount of money and to get them entrapped into online gambling, get them entrapped to online porn, get them entrapped into all sorts of activities that also, you know, they can end up getting a control file. If I can get you addicted to porn and then migrate you to a website where there are underage actors, bam, I've got you on a felony rap and I've got all the evidence I can prove it and it's very economic. So if you want to get a lot of control files on people for political reasons, you know, I've always, one of my questions has always been, is that one of the ways that help them steal the 21 trillion? So, so I would say um, a lot of the behavior you see of people going along is they don't know how, they don't know how to fight city hall and they are subject to massive amounts of entrainment technology and subliminal programming. And that's something I think that we as a, you know, the people who are fighting for freedom have never wanted to look at 
um, you know, in part because it's a scary if you I don't know if you've ever talked on the on the Corona investigation committee to any of the targeted individual groups. Um, but these are groups who've been targeted with electronic harassment and this kind of technology, and they're very knowledgeable about it. It's very real. So, but how, does um, it, how, how would it work? Do you think like, for instance, it's like on the news that you have like subliminal messages or something like that or? Yeah. So, so one of the things, um, one of the ways we know that something makes sense is we resonate with it. And what it does is it gets you to falsely resonate. So I'm going to tell you the story of one of the times I got tricked just so you get, I'll use myself as the example. So, um, I was at a precious metals conference and I um, I had read stories of um, analyst conferences that Enron had done. And if you looked at the behavior of the analysts, when I read the stories, I said, you know, I bet they were using entrainment technology. And I had used had entrainment technology used on me on the phone, but I had never seen it operated in a conference setting. Mm -hmm. And this was my first experience. So I walk into the ballroom and I'm, I had a client call. So I was late, the speech had already started. And I opened the ballroom doors and I got a wave of this fabulous feeling. What the scientists who understand this, and I'm not one of them say, is the entrainment makes you feel good and that opens you up. And then the subliminal programming, you know, influences you. So I, I walk into the ballroom and I feel this wave of just unbelievable pleasure. And I said, uh-oh, I think they're using entrainment technology. I need to be really careful. So I went over and sat down to an entrepreneur who was part of the gold group that I was part of. And he's he has a very successful business in New Jersey doing auto parts. And he's exceptionally grounded. And I said, I'm going to sit next to him. He'll keep me grounded. So I sit down and I'm taking notes. And the whole time I'm thinking, I got to be, you know, I got to stay focused. I can't lose my, you know, my focus because they're using this entrainment technology. And I was taking notes and I forgot to sort of hold my mind. And suddenly I dropped my pen, started clapping and turned to the guy next to me and says, isn't he wonderful? And I'm looking at my hands and I'm saying, he's not wonderful. What he's saying makes no sense. I don't like the guy. Why am I clapping and telling the guy next to me that he's wonderful? He's not wonderful. And I realized, oh my God, they tricked me, you know, and, and it was astonishing anyway. So let me finish the story. So we, we go through the speech and everybody's clapping and they're just saying he's wonderful. So the next speaker is George Tennant. This is right after he left the CIA. And he gets up and he says, you know, the problem on 9-11 was we weren't coordinated and um, we weren't coordinated. So we need this new legislation to make sure all the intelligence agencies and enforcement agencies can coordinate. And so so in the in the prior speech, they had taken questions because, you know, with this technology, they felt they had such a friendly audience. So Tennant finishes and his speech is complete, you know, in, in my opinion, I just couldn't disagree with him more. So I thought, okay, I'll, I, I stood up, I walked to the microphone and I said, uh, Mr. Tennant, my name is Catherine Austin Fitz. Of course, he knows who I was. He flinches. And I said, can you explain why the Air Force stood down four times on 9-11? And he turns 
when I tell you he turned exactly the color of your sweater, Vivian. <laughs> it was beautiful. It's beautiful on you, but it was not beautiful on him. And he, he made a mistake. In politics, you're always taught, if you get a question you don't want to answer, just segue, do a non-sequitur and answer the question you wish you'd gotten. But apparently he hadn't gotten the training. And he said, dripping with sarcasm, well, my dear, uh, perhaps you didn't notice I was the head of the CIA. Maybe you should ask the head of the Air Force, thus destroying his argument about coordination and cooperation, <laughs> at which point about 1,500 precious metals investors stopped thinking he was wonderful and said, he's scared. What's the problem? There's a problem. Something's wrong. And I had several dealers tell me several weeks later that they sold more precious metals on that one question <laughs> because everybody realized, oh, you know, there's a real problem in the system. Anyway, I, so so that was my first experience of, of having it in a conference setting, and I've experienced it since then. Um, but it's, it's so powerful because here I am, I have experience with this technology, I know it exists, because of the litigation and harassment I had to deal with, I, I did a lot of research about it. And and even I literally, you know, with with my with letting go of sort of focusing my mind in 10 seconds, I completely got tricked by it and started clapping and saying a guy was wonderful who, you know, whose speech I didn't like and who I don't think is wonderful. You know, it's so it's strong. It's very important that we speak about such things. Ah, we have to we have to learn all those tricks. We have to know them. Right. We have to show. Oh, this is number nine. This is number ten. All right. the tricks you can give them numbers, and you, we we play with this. We have to learn them. I think it's very important. So let me make a suggestion. There are three resources at the Solari which can help. Um, that first one is the one on mind control, and it includes the interview I did with the scientist. The first one I did on entrainment technology for, I was focused on financial applications, but I would certainly recommend the James Giordano and Charles Morgan on military grade neurological weapons. The second is I just did an interview with Ulrich Groniger on control and freedom happen one person at a time. And it's an overview of how the control grid works. The last one, which is subscriber content in Solaria, I did a 12 part series, including with my attorney called Deep State Tactics 101, where I literally walked through an encyclopedia of all the tactics that I dealt with over 11 years when I was litigating with the Department of Justice. Because, you know, uh, you know whether there were legal tactics or financial tactics or physical mm -hmm. harassment, covert tactics, you know, we ran through all of it, including um, when I was in Washington, they used electromagnetic weaponry on us and low-grade biological warfare. That's where I first started to learn about low-grade biological warfare. I was poisoned eight times. So, you know, what is? It would be very, very helpful if you have those sources you just told us about. If we you could take them down, that we make a list and put them on yeah, our homepage. Absolutely, that would be that would be great. Okay. And then, you, you know, the only the only list I know about such things was from Schopenhauer. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, he made a list about the heuristic tricks. He called it heuristic. It's the art to, to be right, to, to win a discussion. And right. he, he made a list of, of all those tricks, how to do it. And uh, I, I found it very helpful as a politician to know those tricks. I could just say, this is trick 17 you play with me. So, <laughs> so but maybe that's, <clears throat> maybe that's a, 
I'm sorry, Catherine, I interrupted. No, you go, you go, you go. I, 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 was, I was just going to say, I, 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 you started by saying that you disagree, and I, I haven't heard the disagreement. So, <laughs> so I don't think the problem is propaganda. I think the problem is military-grade neurological weaponry. Yeah, I think both? we're dealing... How about both? It's, it is both, but, but in a million years, they could not get away with a pandemic just based on propaganda. Well, let me tell you, let me tell you another. No, I mean, you know, it, it's, I, I, I don't think I've ever argued that it's just propaganda. They've been, you know, they've been playing with mind control for, for quite right. a long time. Right. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not as knowledgeable about all that, the stuff that you were just talking about, but uh, I think it would be silly to deny that it's going on. I mean, they've, you know, they were, uh, you know, they were, uh, uh, they were dosing people with acid and playing with, right. cult, with cult leaders back in right. the, you know, sixties and seventies. And, um, and that was just the beginning of it. I mean, anyone, anyone who's dug into MK Ultra and all of that, um, it's all documented. You know, why why wouldn't they be still developing the technology? I think my point my point has always been that it even even if even if we've identified all of these technologies and somehow disabled them all, you know, there is still a, a power. There is. They could still do what they're doing without all of these technologies, maybe not as efficiently, maybe uh, uh, not as in, a, in such a targeted way. But I'll tell you a, another little story, just a, 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 a simpler story, but it's actually similar to yours. Um, this is back when I was still living in Miami in Coconut Grove um, and uh, when I was a young man. And my girlfriend at the time, her mother, was uh, a follower of some uh, Maharishi. I don't know, you know, what Maharishi it was, you know, um, but uh, we got invited, her mother invited us to this, you know, mass uh, gathering uh, of this Maharishi and, and, and his followers in some hall in Coconut Grove, I forget. Um, and so I, I, I went out of curiosity, I wanted to, you know, to see what was going on. And I walked into the room and in, and immediately began feeling this energy that was, you know, kind of powerful in the beginning. And then it just built and built and became more and more overwhelming. And I struggled with it in the room. And I was like, you know, what's what is going on here? I feel like I'm I'm being overwhelmed uh, by some force in this room, and I finally had to run out of the room. I finally had to 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 get out of the room and stop and clear my head. And I realized, you know, what was happening. You know, you know, I come from the theater. What 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 was happening in that room is that I was inside of a room surrounded by thousands of people who were all looking at this little man who was up on the stage. And these people believed that this man was God. Right. And just, you know, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe there were also machines being used. But just the power, the power of the human collective. Oh, yeah, yeah, those, yeah. Those thousands of people, those thousands of people all believing and acting, not just believing, but behaving right. and acting as if this man, you know, were God incarnate sitting up on the front of the stage. The power of all of those people is what was overwhelming me and right. what I needed to get away from. 
Right. And and to me, that was it was just a huge lesson, both artistically and and politically for me. Um, in essence, it's the well, same thing that an ensemble of actors does. You know, when we see a when we see a piece of theater or a film, and you think, "Oh, that was such a brilliant, brilliant performance." You know, why is it such a brilliant performance? It's because these actors completely gave themselves to this fictional reality. Right. So, but so let's step back and talk about how the control grid works. I, so the control. Could yeah. I ask one more question? Or one, one question, because I, I find this overwhelming. I mean, what both of you just said, like, but is it how how does it not affect everyone? So, I mean, like, what's what's then different, like with you and and CJ and and maybe us as well, that we we don't give in to that or we get into like a fight and flight mode, or, uh, you know, right. like when we when we are exposed to something like that, because, you know, that we can still can see what's going on and we're not, uh, you know, sucked into the, the narrative. What's what's the difference? What's the, the, I don't know, reflects the mechanism that protects us or... So I don't think there's a more important question I know. And so I think this is an excellent question. I don't know the answer. I can tell you the patterns that I've experienced, and um, and you really saw this working in government in Washington, and that was that some people, you know, we live in a culture which is very hyper-materialist, but some people had a real cultural and spiritual grounding that represents authentic values, and they are sufficiently grounded um, and and with uh, with understanding the value, you know, whether you want to call it character or whether you want to call it spiritual values, um, where they could not get swept up by a group of people headed with a certain momentum or who were being pressured to to go in a certain. So, for example, I worked at a secretary uh, uh, for a cabinet secretary who would bully his team. And he, he was very forceful, he was very charismatic, and he would literally terrorize people. And there were several people on his senior staff who just, you know, they just didn't, it, 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 it's not that it didn't phase them, but they weren't cowed and they weren't afraid because they had, um, they had a sense of themselves or they had very powerful spiritual values. Mm -hmm. So, so I think it's, um, and it's not one type, but it's people who are capable of, if you've ever studied um, Rupert Sheldrake's concept of morphogenic fields, mm -hmm. they are capable to hold something, into, uh, a thought independent of the field. So I've literally had some of my relatives say to me, you know, I don't want to have to hold thoughts independent of the field. I'd rather believe the official narrative, even though it's not true. Because then I just feel included and I'm part of the herd. So mm -hmm. they 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 prefer to go along because it's more comfortable. They feel uncomfortable. If you've ever been around CJ, what you know is, you know, he can he can hold a separate uncomfortable thought, you know, for a long, long time. <laughs> One of my favorite lines in the documentary, I was we were in the dinner scene and we're talking, and I said, you know, how come you you understand Mr. Global so well. And he said, because that's what I do. I, you know, I'm a playwright, so I create worlds. So I understand, you know, when Mr. Global creates our world, I, you know, I see it because I'm a playwright and he's writing a play. I write plays, you know, we're sort of, you know, we're, we're in the same playwright 
association together. <laughs> is, that, is that fair, CJ? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, I, I, I have always, or for many, many years, uh, described the theater as a reality laboratory. Right. Um, Right. You know, it's um, um, I, I, I don't want to get into a long digression about the theater, but but basically the theater came out of, you know, shamanism and out of religion and what have you. Churches, churches are still reality laboratories for for a lot of people who go to church. You know, that's the that's where the theater came from. You know, it's it's yeah, it's about creating realities. I want to I want to um, see if I can answer uh, Vivian's question, uh, though, uh, I think uh, I, I think what you said was absolutely right on the money. I think the the more someone is aware and grounded in their own values, the more the deeper that someone has has actually done work in their life to to discover what their values are and 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 be grounded in them. Um, this this creates more friction when this larger overwhelming force is coming. Uh, to to try to absorb them in a sense, um, someone who has not contemplated uh, you know life and, and and spiritual matters and 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 doesn't really have that strong foundation. They're more they're more easily absorbed uh, because they don't have they can't generate that as much friction against it. Um, that said, I think there's a, a, a probably a whole host of reasons why some people don't get absorbed so easily. Um, I, I keep, uh, I mentioned it in the introduction of my book, I brought up the, uh, uh, the oh God, what's uh, help me with my Alzheimer's, the experiments, uh, the, um, the Milgram. Uh, Milgram, thank you very much. Um, uh, the Milgram experiments, you know, why, you know, these were performed and, you know, you know, and, and there's there are any number of other experiments. Basically, what what you find is is you know roughly about a third of the people are not as susceptible. About two thirds are ready to go along. Um, uh, you know, why is that? Maybe somebody is is more grounded in their own values. Maybe someone has had experience with you know mind control, with manipulation, with gaslighting in the past, and. And yeah, and they're more aware of it and they're more sensitive to it, yeah. um, uh, you know, and there are probably many, many other uh, reasons, uh, many, many other answers to that question. The, the one thing, the one thing that I wanted to say, though, just to go back to my little anecdote about being in the room with the Maharishi crowd is, you know, why was I not absorbed in that room? Because there was a door that was not locked. You know, I was able to in that moment, in that yeah. moment when I felt, oh, I'm going to be overwhelmed. And because of whatever my background was or values or what have you, I decided I don't want to be overwhelmed. I want to stay who I am. And I ran out and the door was open. If that door had been locked and I had been trapped in that room, how long would I have been able to resist? I don't know. You would be, you would learn for life. You would be afraid, never, you would feel any situation like that and you would never enter again such a room. Well, this, Wolfgang, what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is that if there is nowhere to go, if, you know, a reality, because this gets back to the, to the point that I've been trying to stress for quite a while, um, a lot of, uh, 
a lot of the way that I see the new normal, you know, that has been rolled out over the last two and a half years, this, this is the implementation of a new reality. Yeah. I mentioned it in the beginning. We, from, 20, from 2001 to 2016, we lived in the war on terror reality. That was our reality. You know, we still take our shoes off and put our liquids in little plastic bottles, you know, at the airport and we didn't even think about it. It became our reality. And we opened up the newspaper every day and there was, you know, terrorist threat here, terrorist threat there, lone terrorist, but that was reality, right? For the last two and a half years, we, masses have been conditioned in a, in a new reality, a new reality. You yeah, know? but you know something, CJ? The... They've been building for 30 years what I call a digital concentration control camp. I mean, it's a digital control and it's a concentration camp. It turns your home, your car, everything, your community into a concentration camp. To get it to work, they've got to snap in digital IDs and CBDCs. And if they thought they could get us to go along with the cultural aspects, they wouldn't need those. They wouldn't need CBDCs and, and digital IDs and the complete digital concentration camp because they don't trust us. And you go back through history and there is an impulse of humans who want to be free. Yeah, And, and they don't great. trust us and they, they want complete control of the food supply, complete control of the financial supply, complete control of the energy supply because they don't trust us to stay in the box without unbelievably tyrannical completion. You know, this is a very big chance. If we feel that they yeah. don't trust us, we have the distance from them. Right. And we don't, we don't trust them. They carry on, maybe, but, but there is, we, are, we may get opposition. You know what I think is very important? Then when you observe a child that is trying to, to, to feel something, that something is wrong, this is such a big thing. You have to be so watchful when children find out there's something going wrong. It's so valuable because when they have success with this feeling, with feeling that they think something else themselves, when they have success with it once, they will do it again. Mm -hmm. They will be encouraged to think, no, no, I have to be careful. So I think this, learning this, it's so important. We need schools where you can learn this. <laughs> and I, I think I myself experienced so many situations where I was in a position. And I remember all those, I always was afraid that some, I may be punished by the school director or by, I don't know when I, when I did something what I should not do. And afterwards I was proud. And, yeah. and if, you have, if you have this experience several times, you have you have uh, uh, how do you say and you have instruments to survive then yes absolutely if yeah. if i if i could just go back to what um catherine was saying um because uh, uh, i was going to say i disagree with you but i don't think i really do um <laughs> what i was going to because you said you, you said if they could do it with the cultural stuff they wouldn't need the uh, cbdc's and all the, and and all this other and they need all the stuff that you were talking about for us 
they don't they don't they don't need it for the oh i totally disagree i totally disagree let let, let me let me let me let me finish though okay i will it's think think of think of the experience think of our experience over the last two years think of the majority of people who were are just willing to go along with whatever narrative was being pumped out on any given day even though they changed it the next day and turned around and reversed themselves whatever it was still just official narrative official narrative official narrative right there is there is a large mass, I believe, a majority of people who will absolutely do that without any other technologies. The problem is <clears throat> there's about a third of us that won't. And there's a smaller percentage of that third of us who are loud and speak up and start telling other people things and pointing at things like you do. And, right. and like I do, and we make trouble and we get inside of people's brains and we create doubt, <laughs> right? It's, they cannot rely on just the cultural stuff. The cultural stuff is not sufficient, you know, to, to control the entire territory. Um, it's, it's, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean that it doesn't achieve what it achieves. I think it gets them. I think it gets them about two thirds of the way there. Oh, I think, I think it gets it about ten percent of the way there. I think the discussion we are just having is the most important discussion. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a thing. It's a, a topics where we can learn, where really, where we can yeah. really have have knowledge, and that we can, yeah. can learn to see the situation, recognize situations, where we can, where we can. I think it's possible to learn it, yeah. to train it. Maybe, maybe let me challenge Catherine um, uh, just a little bit. I wish I could remember this guy's name. Um, he just put out a tweet and I just mocked it and made fun of it. Um, <clears throat> he's, he's one of, he's the guy, it's Nathan Robinson, I think. He's the editor of uh, uh, Leftist Magazine, lives in Brooklyn. You know, he's one of the, uh, uh, I forgot the name of the magazine, Culture something. Anyway, he's just like the archetypical, you know, Brooklyn, you know, liberal leftist, whatever you want to call him. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the state of New York just uh, revoked the uh, uh, mask mandate on the public transportation. Um, and so Nathan pumps out his tweet, you know, and this is, you know, September 9th, 2022. This is happening. Nathan pumps out his tweet. It's like, okay, the state of New York is now, you know, going along with the far right extremists and trying <laughs> to infect, trying to, you know, encouraging uh, the far right extremists to infect everyone with COVID. This is not, this, this is not an idiot. This is a really intelligent, educated guy you know who no who, no 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 i i contradict no 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 i'm sorry but he's he's not stupid this is not a stupid person this is an intelligent well-educated guy who on september 9th 2022 is pumping out this tweet and my question is why well there there's several possibilities one is, you know, this is whether socially or professionally, this is his stairway to heaven. This is where he gets somewhere. You know, that's number one. Yeah. So, so number two is, you know, so, so he's following a path 
you know, for people like him, it's almost a fashion choice. But the other thing is, my guess is, and I know nothing about Nathan, my guess is he can't fathom the real system that's going on. He literally can't see it. He can't fathom it. And he wants more than anything to desperately feel safe and therefore denying the existence of the fact that there are people trying to kill him is something he feels, you know, he would rather not know. So, so he doesn't want to fathom evil. He doesn't want to fathom psychopathy because he wants to enjoy his life and he wants to feel safe. And as he enjoys his life and feels safe, he needs a pathway to perform and be successful. And, and, you know, he's on a, he's on one of those pathways sort of socially or politically or economically, which will work for him. He's, you know, and if you can print money and pay people like Nathan to do that, you can get millions of people doing that because it's financially successful. I, I, I take it a step further. Um, I think you're absolutely right, Catherine, but I take it a step further. Um, you could show Nathan, you know, I'm sure Nathan has seen all of the the actual data on the virus and, you know, the non-efficacy of masks and, you know, and, and all of this. Um, I'm, I'm certain that I would I would bet a lot of money on it. Um, and you could you could show him any amount of you know data and supporting information and what have you <clears throat> wouldn't make a bit of difference. Because if Nathan deviates from this narrative, if he if he deviates from this narrative and starts criticizing it, starts doubting it, starts questioning it, he will lose his entire professional infrastructure he right. will, he will alienate himself from his entire social circle and he will become ostracized from the reality that he lives in and become utterly alone right utterly so, alone so. and he whether he processes that consciously or not just that that fear <laughs> That fear is there. That's the boogeyman. Just, just call him and tell him that he would not be alone. <laughs> well, but, but here's the but thing. We're, I, Wolfgang, I, we're, if we, you know, he wouldn't be alone because he'd be with us, but we're monsters. <laughs> we're no, dangerous but, extremists. Yeah, but, okay, first of all, just remember, <laughs> I, I started clapping for a man I loathe and turned to my neighbor and told him he was wonderful and what he was saying was brilliant. Okay? So... So he's dealing with the same technology now that I was dealing, except he's ingested a lot more. That's number one. But the other thing is, if you're Nathan, you know, I left the establishment. I had a Rolodex of 5,000, the most important, powerful people in the United States, and I got dropped by every one of them in 24 hours. Okay. And I had to go at not just, I had to go at completely alone for many, many years. But I was sure I could do that, and I was sure that that was the right choice for me because I had faith, okay? And, you know, different people can have different things. My favorite line from Scripture is, faith is the substance of things hoped for but not yet seen. And I believe, and I was trained because I was trained at the, by the people at the very top of the financial system, we have the power to invent our world. You know, just like you're a playwright and you know you can invent a world, I had been trained by the best and the brightest within the United States to believe I was part of a group of people, I was part of a tribe, and we had the power to invent our world. And we did invent our world, we invented the world for everybody, right? And so, so I had the skills and the training and the attitude, but I also had the faith 
you know, that I wanted to live in a world worth living with. I didn't want a world, live in a world which to me was sort of psychopaths out of, out of control. And I was willing to, you know, to be completely alone for years if that's what it took. Because I believe I can invent my world. And I believe that substance, you know, that faith is the substance with which you create worlds. Now, not everybody, ha Nathan doesn't have that. It's too overwhelming for him. He wasn't a portfolio, portfolio strategist dealing at the top of Wall Street and, and, and Washington who, who had the perspective or had the map. But you know something? We can give Nathan that perspective and map. We can teach him that he does have the power to invent his world. And there are a lot of other people not just offensive, unattractive people like you and me, CJ, <laughs> people Nathan would really like and bond with, with whom he can invent his world, he won't be alone. Catherine, this is this is probably where we do disagree. Um, it's or sort of, uh, because I <laughs> I don't think I don't think we can I don't think we can help Nathan from where Nathan is now. And Nathan, if you're listening, it's Nathan in scare quotes at this point. It's just any Nathan. <laughs> the Nathans of the world, those those Nathans, here's what I believe. I don't believe, you know, you you first got in touch with me after I wrote my Covidian cult piece. Right. And it's this is kind of like dealing with someone who is in a cult is is it's I don't believe that we can talk Nathan out of where he is or show Nathan any information that will get him out of where he is. But I do believe we can be there when, right. when the, when that crack opens up in that reality and Nathan looks outside, we can be outside waiting and say, Nathan, it's okay. You know, yeah, come, here's on, what, here's come on what, out, <laughs> come here's, on out, Nathan. Here's what we can do now. And here's what we must do now. And that is we can appreciate that Nathan is a human being. He is a sovereign human being. He has values. He has rights. And he deserves our empathy. Because we must not let Mr. Global take away our empathy for our fellow man. Yeah, it's uh, uh, absolutely. Um, it's... Uh, <laughs> people misunderstand, and I understand why they misunderstand me. Uh, because uh, a lot of times, uh, a lot of what I do is about hammering on the reality that Nathan's mm -hmm. living in and hammering on it aggressively, right? And, and not in a nice, gentle way. Um, but I am actually doing that out of empathy. I'm doing that because ultimately I believe that Nathan and I are no different. I believe we are both the same human beings right. that so, you're talking about. And I think if I can, if I can crack, put a little crack in that reality that Nathan is capable of looking and seeing that there is something outside. So, you know, it's it, sometimes, sometimes empathy isn't about, sometimes empathy requires tough love. Right, right, right. I, I totally agree. But, but, I I don't, as the human race is being debased, I don't want to participate in that. I want to give Nathan options. You know, what we, the more of us who do what we do, if we can build options like 
Nathan should use cash every day. If we can get Nathan to use cash every day, he's going to start to migrate to the right team. So the more we can find solutions and give Nathan options to extend and expand his freedom, you know, I, for one, am willing for all the Nathans in the world to join, you know, join the fight for freedom. I, yeah, I think I, I, I just have a slightly different perspective on it, Catherine. I think, you know, I think uh, a lot of the solutions uh, that you put out there uh, for mm -hmm. people, um, I think those I think those solutions can be grasped and are grasped by right. people who are looking. There are a lot of right. people out there. There are a lot of people out there who just left the room, you know, just left the Maharishi right. room. And they're like, OK, I just left the Maharishi room. What, what do I, I do? do? Sorry, what do I do? I, you know, sorry and, very much. I have to leave the room now because I have a, I have an uh, appointment with with the group. So very it was such a great talk with you. I would like to repeat it and I would like to, to continue once. So, so, it was Thank wonderful. To talk, it was wonderful to talk to you. We want Thank to you very group. much. Bye bye. Thanks so much, also. Um, can I ask you one thing? Like how 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 large the crowd of say uh, uh, psychopath or sociopath? Uh, you know, people who are maybe not uh, capable of empathy. Um, do you think are involved now in this whole game that we're seeing? So my. You know, I, my guess is that two to five percent of the global population lacks empathy. That doesn't mean that you and I would necessarily, or psychiatrists would necessarily diagnose them as psychopath. But when they get control of critical control elements like the central banks, um, you know, they then create a culture which learns over time that certain kinds of behaviors, which I would describe as psychopathic, are successful. So you get this problem where, um, where uh, if you're a politician, if you promote financial responsibility, no one will vote for you, and so you don't. And so you, you know, you get psychopathic behavior catching on, and millions of people behaving according to psychopathic models without them necessarily being psychopathic because it works, and that's how the way things are. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I once it was very interesting. I once had. Um, I was at a Christian revival with a wonderful minister who I was taking her spiritual warfare class, and George W. Bush came in by monitor, and the whole uh, Coliseum sort of stood up clapping for him, including my minister. And I said, wait a minute, you used to work, she used to work at the DEA, and I said, there's nothing about Bush family or Clinton family narcotics trafficking that you don't know. And you just jumped up and clapped for him. You know, you never jumped up and clapped for me and I'm, you know, I'm risking my life and my fortune and everything else to stop their narcotics trafficking. And she said, but, you know, he's a winner. And I said, so he's a winner and I'm a loser. And she said, yeah, that's right. So, you know, the if if in America crime pays and the crowd supports, you know, the winner and the winner's the guy who's good at organized crime, you get this perverse model. And that's why, remember when I said, you know, we were going to have to do a reset. They knew that we were coming into at least a hundred year fundamental change in how you manage the economy and the financial system. And the question is, how do you do that? And if you look at the options, one way to do it is to go to much tighter control. 
There are other ways to do it where you simply realign the financial system so the environment and living things have a win-win relationship with money. You know, but then you can't necessarily control who's in charge and you you may have trouble with risk management. So they decided to go with a complete control model and that's what they're doing. Um, but but the way it's going and to implement it, you have way too many of that two to five percent who have a real lack of empathy in charge. I hate to say this, having been a high level government official, um, there's a lot of feedback from the voting population um, in support of horrible policies that do terrible damage to other people on the theory that, um, you know, it, it makes everybody money. So, so the feedback to many people in the establishment has been, you know, that the general population, as long as they get a check, are very happy to go along with organized crime and warfare if it makes them money. So, where do you think we are in the in this game now? I mean, do you think they're they're clamping uh, down on us? You know, like is it or or are we? Uh, you know, is the uprising of the people who are maybe like now stepping we're, through the door? You know, that we're CJ coming mentioned? into a we're coming into a massive tsunami of clampdown. So, and and I, you know, I don't know. Have I ever shown you this, Vivian? My description. <laughs> so here's the healthcare pedal, and here's the financial pedal. They seem to be doing this. So you put the healthcare pedal down, you back off on the financial pedal. Then you put the financial pedal down, you back off on the healthcare pedal, uh, pedal which is where we've been. And it looks to me, depending on what the who can engineer with this treaty, they're coming into doing another one of these. And part of this is keeping, you know, you keep people off balance and you keep the, fraught, the frog in the pot despite the water getting warmer. So if you look at what both the financial guys and the healthcare guys are cooking up in the back rooms, they're looking at major new waves of central control that are exceptionally ugly. Now, you know, how and where will the, will the human race push back? Human race is going to push back. And, you know, we're, we're in a situation which is exceptionally organic. In fact, you know, we need, we need CJ to write a play about it. <laughs> yeah, maybe you could write, okay. write gonna, the, the exit I, script for us. Yeah. No more, uh, no more, no more plays. Uh, well, I, I, I write plays when somebody pays me to write plays, but okay. I've got, I've got another, I got another novel in the works. And I'll keep uh, going with my columns. Uh, you know, I, I think what you were just describing, uh, Catherine, is just uh, is right on the money. And it's where it aligns with uh, what I was talking about at the very beginning uh, when I joined the session. It's uh, it, this this movement uh, towards, uh, you know, it's not it's not the totalitarianism of the 20th century. It's a different form. You're told you, you call it greater and greater central control. And right. it's the same thing. It's, te but, it's technocracy. Yeah. So it, let me just well, ask you, CJ, because I'm always willing for things to work out. And I'm just, this is, just, we're just in the invention room. So this is sort of a fantasy. If one entrepreneur listening to this said they would be willing to crowdfund it um, and, and throw it out there and see if they could raise money, how much would you need to write a play? And it, it could be an online interactive process 
um, whereby we figure out how uh, we write a play that shows how Mr. Mr. Global and the the thinking class were reconciled to each other around a model of freedom. I wouldn't know how to write that play. <laughs> well, think about it. I don't. Well, Catherine, you know, you we, know, we have to be willing to have a successful result. Well, right? I this. Well, here's another place probably where we disagree. But I think, you know, some I, I think, you know, my uh, my perspective to a certain extent um, is what what I think I'm watching. What I think I'm watching is the evolution of a new power system, a new form of right. of, of power. And here's what I believe. I'll I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll throw it out there. Um, and I might have said it at dinner. Um, it's forms forms come into being. They evolve and they work and they evolve toward their ultimate expression and having achieved their ultimate expression they tend to die just like flowers yeah they begin with a seed and then they grow and then they reach their full bloom and they die and the seeds that they drop out of their death become new forms and new flowers i don't i don't know i don't Frankly, I don't believe that this form, that the evolution of this form can be stopped, can be retarded. Um, I, I, don't, I don't see how. If it, if it can, great, oh, I'm willing. But here's, I do. Uh, let me, I, I absolutely but here's, do. Okay, but go here's ahead. What, but here's what I believe. When I, when I, when I meet and, and talk with people like you and, and Wolfgang and Vivian and everything, you know, it's, the way that I see us, I, I don't see us really as a force that's trying to retard the evolution of this form, that's trying to stop it or reverse it. I see us as the seeds that are inside of it that can give birth to the new forms right. once it reaches its full expression and dies. Right. Um, that's, that's kind of the perspective that I have on this. Right. So the way I would say it is, you know, let the Titanic scheme steam ahead. We're taking a few life rafts and, you know, a few materials and building little arcs and floating away. And let's see what we can get going. Well, it, it's the, the way it, it's, it's I, I guess it's hard to express because it's most of us, you know, you can't fight and you can't resist, you know, being consciously aware of oh, I'm just a seed inside of an evolving form that's going to reach its ultimate expression and die, and then I will be the seed of the new form. You can't, this is not how you fight. <laughs> you, know, right. you don't fight with that consciousness. Um, but that is nonetheless uh, the way that I see it. I think, I think w when you are the evolving form, right, and you feel yourself coming into your full expression, you know, what, what you also feel is the beginning of your death. At the beginning of your of of your dissolution or disintegration, and you desperately desperately try to prevent it, <laughs> and this is part of this whole evolution towards this greater central control and quasi totalitarianism, whatever you want to call it. But I don't, you know, I know you have you have your faith. I have a faith of my own, and what my faith says is, you know what all all of these forms die they all die and they give birth to new forms 
and and it's okay <laughs> that that happens. It's also okay to that that this form reaches its full expression and dies. It probably won't be fun. Right. It's it's probably not going to be fun. But in a sense, I think I think our resistance, I think our resistance and our pushback, it's just a distinction that's important to me. It's not I don't think we're going to stop it to retard it to reverse it. I I think we're helping it to die and fall apart and evolve into so, something else. So the way I would say it is, I think you know my favorite story in the Bible is the story of Gideon. Mm. You know, and in the story of Gideon, the the bad guys are called the Midianites, and the Midianites kill each other. You know, and my expectation is the Midianites will kill each other. And one of my hopes is we can bring enough transparency to help that process along. Yes. And, and, and the question for all of us is, okay, after the Midianites kill each other, you know, how are we going to proceed? And that's what we're doing. We're, we're building, you know, the post-Midianite expression of human civilization, right? You are, yes, you know, right. you know, you know, you know that I, I talk a lot and I write about values. And yes, it's exactly what you said. In in the course of our resistance right now, we are already we are already building or trying to build the next forms, and and we're doing it. Yeah, right. And, and we're doing it absolutely. Yeah, I think right. we're we're sort of enabling the new system. But I, you know, I I would also join um catherine in this in this um conviction basically that it that it's um well there's something we can do about it you know i think it's in, in the end i think it's it's truth that's going to prevail and i think it's you know the yeah. it's love and beauty and it's like what humankind is really about and i think this is such a strong force i don't think that you that in the end you know the evil and the you know like profiting from this and all these dark greedy forces you know are going to survive i think they're really just going to expose themselves now in this in this kind of uh, you know this sort of these times basically because i think it's also in the air you know that that everything is now coming out it's it's going to be seen and everyone is going to you know at some point turn away I mean, with disgust, basically, and say, this is not what we've come here uh, onto this earth. I think it's really, it's a it's a transformationary process. And I think that the others, you know, with like going crazy and crazier and, you know, you see them like dancing and all the nasty masks fall off and they're like with the back against the wall. And, you know, it's it's becoming so obvious that I think that at some point people are really going to see it and, and say, this is not for me. I'm really going to, you know, step off this plank that we saw and I do not consent and I just they just move away I think it might not even be necessary that we really stand against them as you said and like push against them I think we're just gonna you know go another road and oh, I, I think we absolutely need to push against them I think I think we have to play our parts you know these are our these are our parts I can I can I can step out and float above the earth and analyze things the way that I just did uh, but that's not where I live I live you know down here and my part in this drama is to fight is no, to no, push back yeah, no, it, it, it is to, is to create this kind of, you know yes we can even though I see things the way that that I see them I think what we are all doing is absolutely essential even if we don't know 
what the solution is, if we don't know how to win, even if we don't you know, think we're going to win, it doesn't matter. We are all, what it comes down to, you know, Catherine brought it up, you know, it's, it's you know, why did, she, why did she, why was she able to burn her entire Rolodex in 24 hours, <laughs> you, know, you know? What enabled her to do that? And she said it, she has faith. Yeah, she has faith. When when she looked and said, if I burn my whole Rolodex, if I just, you know, wipe out my whole world, you know, like we were talking about, Nathan is afraid of doing, what will I have? And Catherine's answer was, I have faith, right? Um, it's, it's those of us who have faith or have something, whatever it is, that, that allows us to push back and fight. It's absolutely essential that we do, even if we don't understand how we're going to win. No, no, of course, I think we, we must uh, fight back and we are, are doing that, you know. But I think in the end, once we've pushed uh, back enough, I think that just we can really just um, watch them crumble because I think they're really going to, you know, like go so overboard with what they do. And then they really just going to, I don't know, destroy, destroy themselves. And I think it's, you know, like we, we have today, it's, I think we really picked the right word for this, yes. uh, for this session. <laughs> I noticed that, yes. And I think it's, you know, it's like, it's, it's faith, love and, and hope, basically, that's going to yes. lead us through all this. I noticed that it was actually it was absolutely the perfect word, and you know, Vivian, of, of of course, you know, it's it's you know, nothing lasts forever. No form, no system lasts forever. You know, they they, they all die, and, and new forms take their place. It's only it's only when you when you think that you're in control of everything that you can last forever. Yeah. <laughs> And and unfortunately, I, I you know I feel like we're kind of in that phase with this thing. Anyway, I'm going to have to go soon. Yeah, we should like get together for some brainstorming on how the script, the exit script, uh, could be written. And I think we so should in, reconvene. Yeah, do go ahead, Vivian. In in um, in business, you you know what a forecast is, but sometimes you do a backcasting. And a backcasting is when you write the fictional story of how it all worked out and was successful. And by putting together the backcasting, you start to realize, oh, these are the actions we could take today which would most help us be successful. So it's called a backcasting. And we have to we have to figure out how much money it would take to get CJ to, to do a backcasting and see if we can't get some entrepreneur to crowdfund it. Yeah, let's look for that. I'm, I'm, I'm flexible. <laughs> see what, uh, you know, see what you can get me, Katz. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm open. Like I said, like I said, I'm still writing. Uh, I just uh, uh, did a commission for a crazy, uh, you know, theater type thing uh, with a college in uh, Massachusetts. Um, you know, like I say, I'm, I'm taking commissions. So. Okay, let's let's get the money together. I think it it sounds like a plan. Okay, <laughs> thanks so much for for talking to us today. It was really I think it was amazing and very inspirational. I think I'm going to dream tonight about some maybe like a first step to the solution so we can then <laughs> take it from there. Well, what we all need to do cuz I think you called it right dreaming, we have to nurture our faith, our hope and our love. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Thanks so much Amen. everyone. Thanks. It was Thank a you. pleasure. Thank you.
Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, bye. Um, ja, wir haben jetzt noch den, uh, den Film, den uh, Oval Media. Which Oval Media did of a discussion between Austin Fitz and uh, CJ Hobson. Hopkins. Uh, I can only take leave and uh, say enjoy it. 40 minutes of inspiration. We uh, you can fund us, you can support us financially. It's be good. We have big plans. Maybe we can also give a little contribution to CJ Hopkins for uh, script idea. Um, and the next being, I'm just saying this, probably he'll be taking action without money as well. And uh, maybe with our input, and if you've got input, of course, we'd be happy to take some ideas. And that takes us to the end of the session. I think it was quite notable, and I'll hopefully um, have a nice weekend and a good nice evening, a good weekend. In that way, I wish all of that to you and see you next week. Bye-bye. The World Health Organization says Europe is now the epicenter of the global coronavirus pandemic. I am officially declaring a national emergency. We will be denying entry to Canada to people who are not Canadian citizens or permanent residents. Nous sommes en guerre. We're at war. In a true sense, we're at war. From tonight, you can only leave your home for very specific reasons. Life and, frankly, freedom as we know it are both going to change. And the expectation and fear is that we will see markets in free fall this morning here in the U.S. as they have done in the global markets already today. This is not a financial crisis. This is just a temporary moment that we will overcome together as a nation and as a world. admit the pandemic's been wildly successful. Yeah. Yep. So far. Yep. What is it? It's August 5th. It's August 5th. 2021. 2021. And we are, what, 17, 18 months into the new normal? Soldiers are patrolling the streets of Sydney 
to yeah. enforce, uh, you know, strict compliance with uh, corona measures. Which is impossible. This is, Australia is the lucky country. That can't happen. You know, a global segregation system is being rolled out in which countries? In France, in Italy. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's happening to some degree in Germany, it's coming. Well, and I think it's more than a segregation. It's a control system, and the segregation is designed to herd everyone into it. So anybody resisting the control system is being herded, and you're being threatened with isolation, yeah. and essentially now bankruptcy and starvation if you don't agree to be herded into the control system. And, and blatantly, and blatantly yeah, yeah, yeah. so. You know, who was the governor of New York? Uh, uh, Cuomo just came out and said, you know, you know, you've got to get vaccinated or you're going to be shut out of society. <laughs> you know? Well, if he's leading it, I'm happy to get shut out. <laughs> <laughs> but really, I mean, I try to get my mind around that this is actually happening in right. France. Um, they're not only going to put the unvaccinated in prison if they try to go into a restaurant, um, but they're also going to put the restaurateurs and business owners in prison if they serve right. the unvaccinated. You know, so this is being rolled out across the world. Uh, what else is, is, is happening? Well, what you're watching is the ultimate centralization of power because you now have global power that can project and force 190 plus nations to behave in a way which strips them completely of sovereignty. So it, it strips the nations of sovereignty, but it strips the individuals within the nation of sovereignty. And it's literally the global projection of power by, you know, call it what you want, an organized crime syndicate or tyranny or whatever, but it's, it's the ultimate central control and the destruction of the rule of law. You've been calling it Mr. Global. Right. I've been calling it Globocap. And, you know, these are both, you know, just terms that we've come up with to try to describe, you know, where power is actually located. So the reason I started using the expression Mr. Global is it's clear we have a secret governance system. Yeah. Which is ridiculous. Think about it. Think about living on a planet and you're not allowed to know, you know, how the governance structure works. So I just created a name for it because it's a complex phenomena, but I needed a simple term to describe a secret governance structure. And that's all it is. And it's, it's kind of the same, it's a little different, but the same reason that I came up with my term, you know, Globocap that I'm mm -hmm. talking about. Um, most people, the majority of people still kind of feel like we're living in a world, you know, of, of sovereign nations competing with sovereign Correct. nations, right. you know, and that that is the structure of power. And, and naturally, it's not because they're stupid, you know. That's the world that you and I grew up in, right? Um, that's the world that was sold to us. That's the world that is projected to us. But it's not actually the world we're living in. The world we're living in is it, where power is located is what you just right. described. Right. It's not only that we don't know, you know, who they are, um, you know, just trying to articulate what it is, <laughs> right. what this governance structure is, you know, I think people are just beginning to do that. Well, there's a fantasy, for example, that the president of a country runs the country. Right. And 
that's very simplifying and it's very comforting because you know who who's running it and and it despite every piece of evidence to suggest that that person is a marketing front and it's clearly I mean it's clear that the current president of the United States is not running anything it couldn't be clearer <laughs> right but but it's a you know it's sort of the face of Oz yeah it's a comforting simplifying expression but it is very clear and this is the result of decades of financial coup it's very clear that we are experiencing a global coup d'etat yeah this is a fundamental change in how the governance system will manage so the governance layer is there but now they're changing the management system in a very radical way right i think that's exactly you know what is happening it's this is another radical step in transferring power out of you know at least nominally democratic right. institutions right. into this you know uh, much more centralized control exactly and and into this governance this global governance system that you know we can't really understand completely because it's not transparent so the the changes operationally and financially and legally that needed to occur for this to happen have been rolled out over the last three decades yeah. and it's been happening steadily it's been clear this is where it's leading we see many people who've warned and written about this is where it's leading but what was remarkable about it a lot of it was very invisible in the day-to-day -day life and it's only now that they're throwing the trap and if you look at the real trap they're going to throw they haven't begun to show their hands of the trap that they're th they're about they're working into yeah yeah exactly and this is part of why i wanted to come in and and talk to you because you know we we come from uh, different places <laughs> and looking you know really different places and and looking at different perspectives but what you just described is the same uh, drum that i've been beating mm -hmm. for years and years and years you know you you talked about the last three decades you know and what i've been tracking you know in my work is this new world that we're in right. and it really is about 30 years old you know when the when the soviet union collapsed and that last really you know a real ideological conflict disappeared we we became this you know global capitalist mr globo you know mr global world um and what we've been watching for the last 30 years is actually a, a, a completely logical development. It's, right. it's, it's the centralization of political and economic power. And it's been, it's been going on steadily. It's what George H.W. Bush used to saw, call tighter and righter hands. <laughs> <laughs> We're pulling control into tighter and righter hands. Yeah, absolutely, right. absolutely. Right. And uh, you know, I have to say one thing. If you go back and you study the history of financial fraud and assassination in the United States, yeah. what you'll hear is they do something, they get away with it, and they're like, wow, we got away with it. And, and, but it emboldens them. You know? and, and what we're watching is the emboldening of that, of that governance structure as to what they can get away with. I think what is happening right now is, uh, you know, is just really testament to that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, Globocat, Mr. Globo, the powers that be, you know, however you want to describe them, 
they feel that, you know, A, we can do this. We can, right. we can transition from, you know, this old, you know, uh, simulation of, you know, democracy and everybody's free. And we can now transition to a more openly totalitarian structure where we order you to, you know, inject yourself with, you know, vaccines and, and do all of these things. And B, and B, and the thing that, not only do they feel that they can do this now, it's interesting to me that they feel that they need to do this now. Well, it's more than that. They believe that this is inevitable. In other words, they have a vision of the future, yeah. which they consider inevitable. Yeah. And it was funny, I was at the Aspen Institute at a conference, and um, some billionaire shows up for the, one of the panels, and he stays afterwards to talk with me, and he's talking about how they can replace every human being in the labor force with software and AI mm. and run everything with AI and robots. They don't need people. And he had this look in his eyes like, honey, I've been up in the spaceship and I'm telling you, this is how it's going to go. Mm. You know? And it was almost like long ago he'd given up. Mm -hmm. He'd given up hope for a human future. But he had this complete picture and, and he was literally it, it was inconceivable to him that this picture wouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there, there's an emotional and, and an energetic commitment there, which is frightening. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The, the fact that, that it is happening now, it, it just makes me ask, okay, what is the need? You know, why now? Why is, why is this the time? for, you know, Mr. Global to make the transition to a more openly totalitarian um, structure because they're, you know, it's, it's, it's not being hidden. They're clearly broadcasting the message, yes, we're going more totalitarian. <laughs> so we don't, I don't think we know why, but clearly the currency system is creating a need yeah. for a new structure. And, and one of the things we're seeing is the U.S. dollar system um, which was really a partnership of the fiscal uh, infrastructure with the electorate basically voting in representatives who determined where the tax money went and the right. private banking owners with monetary policy through the central banks. That balance of power is over and the central bank is taking over the treasury and the fiscal function, not just in the United States, but everywhere. But when they do that, they are delinking the entire infrastructure from the electorate and shifting it into global global control. Yeah. So so the the dollar system is leaving the US and with it the military. So if you look incrementally, they're shifting the control of the military, they're shifting control of the civil service operations, and they're shifting control of the treasury and fiscal power. And they're literally it's like a surgery it's almost like neurosurgery. They're just de-linking it step by step, and they've been working on it for years. Right. 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 And what we're seeing is, you know, is a quantum leap right, right now, but this is a process that has been ongoing, and I want to talk much more about this and try to get it, you know, to a level where I can get my head around it, because right. I'm nowhere near as knowledgeable as you are um, uh, about all the, the details of this, but it can be pretty simple. It, what it's talking about is transferring the power that was supposed to be ours Right, you know, into this un, this network of unaccountable, you know, supranational entities that we can't 
look at or monitor or check One of the things all. that's so remarkable about your work and why I love your work so much is if you look at how you came to this and you look at how I, I'm just following transactions and money. Yeah. I'm just following money, 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 money. And you're doing culture, 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 and yet we're coming to the same place. It's like a coin, two sides of a coin. Well, it's pretty amazing. And I think that you and I, I mean, just sitting here talking are um, an example of, of something good and something positive that is, that is happening, you know, because I think that while all of this horrific stuff is happening, um, there are new connections that are, yes. that are, you know, that are being established. I mean, if you, if you look at us, I mean, we're talking right now about, you know, how did we get here? How did the world get here over the last 30 years? You know, but how did, how did you and I get here? You know, um, I come from, you know, the downtown experimental theater world is where I got started, you know, 15 years in New York mm -hmm. City, producing, you know, weird plays in converted garages, mm -hmm. you know, and then got lucky with one of them, at, you know, and broke through in Edinburgh and then toured and, you know, this, whatever fame I have, that's, that's it. Now your essays make you very famous. And th th that's later. But, uh -huh. but, you know, you're talking about, you know, the theater is like 200 people at a time. Right. You know, is this is, and that's and and that's where where I was coming from, you know. And then yeah, I started writing my political satire, and you know, I wrote my novel, and sure, people, you know, some more people are, are reading. But the point is, we we just we come from completely different right. worlds, right? You know, and you come from the conservative side. I used to be a liberal, whatever the hell that even means anymore. <laughs> and here we are you know, sitting together trying to, you know, articulate what this is. And, and to me, that's hopeful. You know, we get, I get attacked a lot, you know, by my leftist colleagues and what have you. Uh -huh. and I don't know what these terms even mean anymore. But I, I get attacked a lot and accused of, you know, aligning with the right. Part of what's exciting to me is, is, is uh, you know, because we're talking about a lot of stuff that's just really scary to me and, and right. really dark. Right. But part of what's exciting to me is that I am seeing people, more and more people, dropping, you know, these... these Oversimplified. Exactly. And, and reaching across lines right. and starting to unite as, <coughs> as just human beings One journalist who don't said to want me, to live like slaves, right. you know? One journalist said to me uh, in Switzerland in Christmas time, he said, friends are turning up everywhere. <laughs> That's it. You know, if I look at my right. audience, um, you know, it is really this mixture, you know, uh, of, of people from all different backgrounds, different, you know, political orientations, all united together sitting down trying to figure out what is going on it's a new field and what can we do about it it's a new powerful field yeah yeah, yeah. and what i'm getting at is you know what it is that brought us here <laughs> you know what it is that took you on your journey what that, brought that, us here that thing, is that thing in you that made you make the decisions that here's, you've here's made what brought us here I'll scribble it. What we both said is no, I don't have to go along with this. That's right. I don't have to go along. I don't have to go along. I have an option to choose freedom. I have an option to choose liberty. I have an option to choose, because what we're both choosing is abundance. 
and you understand the power of the human mind and intelligence to create abundance. Okay. That's what the theater is. You're creating worlds out of nothing, right? Yeah. I'm trying to finance them, <laughs> right? But that's, you're in the business of creating new worlds, right? Yeah. And that's abundant because there's no shortage. You know, it's infinite. Okay, so when was the first time you felt it? Because you feel it in your gut, you feel it in your stomach. No, I don't have to go through this. I'll tell you the truth. I was born in 1961, so I was, you know, in school in the 70s. I grew up watching the Vietnam War on television, right. watching Watergate, watching the Kennedys be assassinated, watching Martin Luther King be assassinated. Um, you know, by the time I came of age, I felt in conflict with power. Right. I felt like, okay, the myth, the story they're telling me is a story, you know, and and these people are, you know, operating, you know, according to rules of their own, and right. and they don't really care about me and my friends and my family. Right. Somebody asked me this the other day, you know, when did you uh, uh, become skeptical? When did you start? And it's like, I can't remember a time when I wasn't. Wasn't. You talk about it in terms of, you know, creating abundance, creating wealth. You know, I think I'm trying to create more power, you know, right. in people, you know. It, that's the stuff that's, so that's I, important. And the price that you pay for fighting that fight, you know, in that lifetime is, I can't quite put it into words. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's, it comes from a, an understanding from a soul of, of who and what you are in terms of your immortal soul. I mean, the way I would say this is back to investment banking. You know, if your soul is immortal, what is the present value of selling out for affinity? <laughs> you know, it doesn't, it's not worth the trade. Whatever they offer you in the material world, it's not worth the trade because infinity is a much longer cash flow. <laughs> you know, to, to yeah. be, to put it into the expression of compound interest. <laughs> Do you know what, how did you get here? What brought you to this point, you know? Well, I got in a huge squabble with the establishment and got booted out. <laughs> yeah. Tell me, tell me, I know some of it, but you know, tell me the story. So I'd had a very successful career on Wall Street. Then I went to, in, to be Assistant Secretary of Housing of the Bush administration. Yeah. And one of the reasons I ended up there was I had watched HUD fraud destroy my neighborhood. Right. And then it set me on a journey of, well, how does the money work and why is this going on? And, you know, and it's funny because I remember as a little girl, I would walk by this big sign of four, uh, there were four homes catty corner to our house that were foreclosed on. And there was this big sign, by order of the Assistant Secretary of Housing, Federal Housing Commissioner. It's one of the longest titles in the US government. <laughs> and I would think, who is that idiot? <laughs> who is that idiot that they would leave these four homes empty for years while there were, you know, we had a family living across from us that was a whole family in a one bedroom apartment. I was like, this is crazy. And so when, when I'm sitting there with my hand in the Bible and, and the secretary says, by order of the president, I now declare you're the assistant secretary of housing, I thought, oh God, I'm the idiot. Now I'm the idiot. <laughs> now I'm the idiot. And I went downstairs and the first thing I did was I said, we are cleaning out the foreclosure pipeline. This will not happen on my watch, of course. 
So, of course, that was very upsetting to the spooky guys, but that's another story. But anyway, so I, when I left the Bush administration, I said, you know, the bad guys are going to get control of this technology. I understood how powerful the technology was. They're going to get what, control of what, the technology. What technology? Digital talking? technology. Okay, yeah. Digital and telecommunications. They're going to get a hold of this technology. They're going to use it to centralize power. We're going to face tyranny. I've got to do something. Right. And my theory at the time was if I could show them how to decentralize economic power in a way that would make create much more wealth, right. that I might be able to encourage them to come more to a more decentralized model. So I created an investment bank. I financed it with my own money. And the goal of the investment bank was to map out how money works and design a way of reorganizing the financial system in a way that aligned with life. So okay. let me give you an example. If you come into a community, you have a financial system going on, but then you have a living system. Mm -hmm. You know, plants, people, life. Dogs, cats. Cats, yeah. all, all life, all intelligence in that place. So you have living intelligence and you have financial assets and, and intelligence and they, are, they have a win-lose relationship. Okay, so let me give you an example. Um, one of the terms I created when I worked in the Bush administration to express the health of a living system within a place mm. was the Popsicle Index. Okay. The Popsicle Index is the percent of people who believe a child can leave their home, go to the nearest place to buy a Popsicle, and come home alone safely. Right. So when I was a little girl, I could run up to Spruce Street, buy a popsicle, play the pins, come back, totally safe, right. free to roam, okay? When I was a little girl, the popsicle index in West Philadelphia was 100%. The Dow Jones was 150, okay? The Dow Jones has increased by thousands of multiples, and the popsicle index has gone down. Exactly. Okay, that's a win-lose relationship. And one of the things I, I watched in Washington, the home builders, the realtors, um, the mortgage bankers would all come lobby me to do something that would make their Dow Jones index go up, but they would never lobby me to do something that would make the Popsicle index go up. Right. And in fact, many of the things that would make their Dow Jones index go up would hurt the Popsicle index. Right. And I kept trying to persuade them, and I thought, well, if we finance all the small business in a community yeah. with equity, then if you get the Popsicle index to go up, the stocks will go up. They'll go up and down together. So we'll, we'll go from a win-lose relationship to a win-win by decentralizing, essentially, the private and public equity markets. Okay. Anyway, so what happened, and this is one of the most important things that happened to me in my life. I had this genius working for me who I had hired from it. We had a program with MIT. And he had been in Tiananmen Square. Mm -hmm. and had left. Uh, he was sick the day that his friends got killed. He left and came to MIT, got his PhD. I hired him. And uh, I asked him, we, we put together databases of how all the federal dollars worked. It's called Community Wizard. And we mapped out how all the money worked. And so I, I gave the whole, sort of the whole database infrastructure to him. And I said, I want you to go figure out if we could re-optimize all the money so that instead of generating fees for our friends and giving us political control, we just made the economy as healthy as possible. Mm -hmm. What would it look like? I want you to simulate success. Right. He came back and the number was so big, I said, it has to be wrong. It has to be wrong, it can't be, you know, that's too big. I mean, he was saying- What number? My way of saying it, 
existing wealth could be increased a hundredfold. That's what I thought you meant. Yeah. Right. If 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 we just ran the government money to optimize total living health and wealth. Exactly. In the win-win scenario. Right. In yeah. the win-win. So if we went from win-lose to win-win, the wealth was... I kept saying to him, it has to be wrong. And finally he said, look, you have to pay attention. I want you to take the weekend off and just do this. And I went through all those numbers and I said, oh my God, that's the price of oppression. That's the price of tyranny. Central control is so... Waste. If life... If life and, and, and intelligence could align with money, you know, there's no, that's why I say there's no reason for poverty that I know of. Anyway, so that's when I started to laugh because I realized, you know, whatever was going on in this planet, it was not because there was scarcity. Right. And that's before I began to understand the new technology that was available. So, in the summer of, 2000, I was asked by a, a healthcare practitioner to give a speech at a conference called Spiritual Frontiers Foundation. Okay. International. And I had just been publishing a series of materials, and this later became a very famous article called Narco Dollars for Beginners. Mm. And it was meant to be a light and funny introduction to the intersection of Wall Street and organized crime in Washington. Mm. You know, how does dirty money flow in? So I said, okay, well, let's pretend there's a big red button up here on the lectern. And if you push that button, you can stop all hard narcotics trafficking in your city, your county, your town, your state, thus offending the people who control $500 billion to a trillion dollars and the accumulated capital thereon. Who here will push the button? And out of 100 people dedicated to evolving our society spiritually, guess how many would push the button? 10? One. 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 So I wouldn't let him talk. If I had voted, it would be two. And I said to everyone, okay, why would you not push the button? And they said, we don't want our IRAs to go down, mm. so our retirement accounts. We don't want our government checks to stop. We don't want our neighbor's government's just to stop, and we don't want our taxes to go up. And what I discovered that day is the problem was not that they would not push the red button. The problem is that they would not have an honest conversation about how do we turn the red button green? How do we make money pushing the red button? Right. Because in fact, if realigning life and money on a positive note will increase wealth a hundred times fold. You can push the red button, right. but you have to figure out how to do it together. You know, it's like a symphony orchestra. You know, you have to change the score together. You can't do it separate. And they were not willing to go into the invention room and say, okay, how can we turn the red button green? They were frozen, they were afraid. And this is exactly what has to happen before anything right. major will change, is people getting together and conceiving the way to turn that red button right. green, you know. Um, but getting back to your story. My story. Basically, you're a red button pusher. <laughs> I've been pushing the red button. This is what I meant by your stepping on people's toes. You've been pushing that red button throughout your whole life. When I was like. doing Hamilton Securities Group, I thought I had full support of the establishment to do what I was doing. Mm. They wanted uh, models tested. They wanted models prototyped. I thought I was totally on, on the page. 
And if Nick Brady and the boys had sent someone to say, look, you're off the line, get back here, I, I would have done exactly what I was the I was the the typical good soldier. I was not looking. And what was funny is when they did what they did and they broke many laws, they tried to frame us, they falsified evidence, they lied, blah, 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 blah. I finally got my back up. I thought your plan stinks. It won't work. I don't want to be part of it. it it's a, you know, it's a, you know, we, we, we psych, psychopathy cannot lead a planet. No. <laughs> and when, and when you say when they did what they did, you're talking about when they came after you and Hamilton, right? Right, but it wasn't, it wasn't that they came after me. Yeah. You know, that's just a fight. Okay. What they were doing was they were dropping SWAT teams into poor neighborhoods, rounding up innocent people and stuffing them into prison to make the prison stocks go up. Yeah. It was slave labor. Yeah. It was absolutely slave labor, and it was part of bringing drugs in in a way that was making the money, which is genocide. Right. And what I said is, as Americans, if we allow slave labor camps and genocide, then it's simply a matter of time before they come for all of us. Right. So you can't, this is a line that can't be crossed. It, you can't do this. It's genocide. Right. And, and, you know, I get a kick out of making money from building wealth. I don't get a kick out of making money from genociding people. Yeah, right, or turning them into slaves, yeah. By rounding these people up and putting them in the private prisons, it's slavery. Mm. It certainly sounds like you pushed some red button yep. while you were, you know, in town. And if you look at what my old partners on Wall Street were up to, and that sort of got me booted out. I thought what they were doing was in violation of the law, was in violation of our informal laws, and I thought they were making a terrible mistake. And I didn't want to be a part of it because I thought we needed a better way. And there was no way that I could invent a better way inside. They weren't going to permit me to, which meant I had to leave, I had to go out in the wilderness if I was going to create a better way. Right. I don't want to be a slave. And I, I, don't, I don't want to make money making other people slaves. I mean, that's what I watch. I watch most people I know go into work every day and help build a slavery machine. And, you know, my question is, you don't have to do that. You know, I think I don't have to do that. Right. And, and I think if I'm building a slavery machine, ultimately it's going to come around and get me. And that is, of course, the message that everybody's getting. Now that you've helped them build a slavery machine, they're coming around and they're going to make you a slave. So maybe you should stop building the slavery machine. Right. But the other thing is, you know, I did not trust the system. That's why I could never. I tried very hard to figure out how to have children. Yeah. And I could never figure out how to, how to keep them safe. And from the moment I decided I can't have a child because I can't protect that child physically, yeah. then I thought, you know, as a matter of integrity, I have to do something about this. I have to do something that will make it possible for other people to grow up in a, in a high popsicle index world. If I can't do it, then at least have the integrity. And it was, it's really interesting because, you know, I always feel comfortable around children. I feel I have no problem looking in the face. If I hadn't done that, I couldn't look them in the face. I couldn't. You know, some people write to me and, you know, say, you know, oh, you know CJ, you're so brave. And so thank you for what you're doing. You're so brave. 
you know, and I appreciate it, and I, I, I appreciate uh, their thanks and, and, and everything, but I tell them it, it really isn't bravery. I just want to be able to look myself in the, in the face right. in the morning. It's, well, it's about it's, integrity. It's selfish. And, uh, the right, way it's I, very selfish. The way I see it is I want to be able to look myself in the face in the mirror. I want to be able to sleep at night. Right. You know, and I, I don't think it gets any more selfish than that. Right. I, I completely agree. It is selfish. Yeah. And they would say All I'm a us. megalomaniac, that I think I can realign the Dow Jones or the Popsicle Index. And my attitude is fine. If I don't do it, who will? Right. I'm just on a, just <laughs> honest, honest question, Catherine. Yeah. How many, how many of your, you know, former compatriots, you know, on Wall Street and in that world were really thinking about the Popsicle Index? Um, a lot of them thought about the Popsicle Index, but a lot of them felt constrained and afraid and because it was dangerous to try and go too far out. And what happened to me, you have to understand, I got booted out. I wasn't looking to get out. I got booted out. I know. But I really believed I could do it. I really believed, you know, if you look at the people who built the cathedrals, yeah. they would begin a plan it was going to take longer than their lifetime. Yeah, exactly. And when I started this journey with the Popsicle Index, I assumed that it was going to take longer than my lifetime to figure it out, let alone do anything, but that other people would come. Right, and the only point that I was trying to make is, is you know, even though you have the ability to do that, right, there is still the choice. You right. Know, is that what I want to do? Absolutely, right. Or do I just want to line my pockets and take care of myself? Uh, it's not a world that I find of interest. And that's the answer to it. I can't hang out with people like that in that world. I can't, you know, I think you're here. I, I think what I'm getting at is, you know, us from our from our completely different, you know, starting points. Yeah. You know, and our completely different journeys through different territories, you know, at the core of it, it's you're either that way or you aren't. Right. <laughs> You know what I'd like to do to wrap up this session is talk a little bit about what we're going to talk about. Okay. What I want to talk about, you know, um, is I want to I want to understand. You know, we're talking about Mr. Global. Right. Right. We're talking about you know I write I talk about Global Cap. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about Mr. Mr. Global. But one thing that I want to get into with you, we got into a lot of it today already. Um, but I want to try to make it simple so that people like me, who can't quite, you know, follow people like you, I want to try to get it uh, simple, and I want to talk about how this machine works, and I want to talk about that that transfer, that transfer of money and power right. out of the structures, the institutions and structures that should belong to us the transfer of that power and money to Mr. Global and Global Right, Cat. so I want to talk about um, a person's or a family's money yeah. and how it flows into this machinery that then translates into power through which Mr. Global can control us with our own money. There you go. Yeah. Um, I want to get into this with you. Um, right. uh, I want to talk about why you know, people like me who don't follow financial matters, why we should be paying attention to this, right? you know, and, and, and taking steps, taking the well, steps how, that we how, can to stop how it. How we've been tricked and how we get untricked. Yes. 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 You know, I don't know what the window is. It's short. Yeah. But 
Mr. Global is taking us somewhere. <laughs> right. Right. And I want to, you know, again, try to, 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 to get you that. You want to teach everyone about how each one of us can, can uh, infuse the whole process with maximum friction. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. But, and first, I want to take, a, you know, a cold, hard look at where we're going and not right. look away from it and not sugarcoat it and take a cold hard look at, at where right. where this is headed right because most people cannot fathom how dark this is Austria's government has approved a new lockdown which will only apply to unvaccinated people <laughs> The worst is yet to come. Gas prices in the U.S. have soared to a new record high. The price of wheat has doubled. Energy costs have risen. All the arrows are pointing in the wrong direction. Global hunger levels are at a new high. In just two years, the number of severely food insecure people has doubled. The prospect of nuclear conflict, once unthinkable, is now back within the realm of possibility. 